TheYeshiva.net. So why don't we talk for a uh, moment about how this event came about, because I know less than you do about it, but maybe I know as much as you do. <laughs> so welcome, everybody. Thank you. And thank you, Ellie, for hosting it and for uh, agreeing to be part of it. I received actually uh, an email from somebody. I think it was uh, last month. And he grew up in a very orthodox Jewish community in the world of orthodoxy, in the world of Torah, the world of yeshivas, the world of Judaism. And he suffered from porn addiction for many, many years, since he could remember, before Bar Mitzvah age. And he told me that in the email, that despite the fact that in recent months and years, especially since Corona, there's so much more open conversation about so many struggles that people have, this issue still remains largely taboo. And so many, so many people who are struggling and suffering cannot find places where there is open, real, honest, authentic talk about it. That is, it's just simply, it's real. It's just real, without cover-ups. And he asked me, he asked, he said, would you reach out to Ellie Nash and maybe do an evening together and really explore? He says, people are dying for this. He says, you don't understand how many friends I have who are struggling with this. People I grew up with in yeshiva, people in my family and myself. Would you please do this? And I sent off an email to Ellie and I got a response, I think, around uh, half an hour later. And he said, I'm in. And here we are. Here we are. Beautiful. So I don't know if you remember this uh, this time. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I was in yeshiva in Montreal, 2002-2003, and you came to Farbring. I think they said you would show up at 9 o'clock. You probably showed up closer to midnight. And uh, Farbringen went late or early. And uh, it was probably the first and only Farbringen I remember in yeshivas that touched the, in yeshiva that touched the topic of, I mean, at the time it was more masturbation. We didn't have access to, to pornography in yeshiva then. It was a little bit tougher. It's possible. And how old were you? And how old were you at the time? 17, 18. Wow. Yeah. And I was definitely deep in my struggle and deep in the, the loneliness of the struggle, which is what I think that email was uh, wanting to tend to, is the loneliness of the, the struggle. The struggle is hard enough even in a group, but when the loneliness of it is especially uh, deep. Right. <laughs> Should we clarify? So it's it's actually a cool, um, I don't know, it's serendipitous in some way that we're having this conversation because that was a formative point to hear a rabbi speaking about that. I heard it was another rabbi, Rabbi Farkash was known to Fabrang on the subject, who was also in Montreal, but he was in the Masifta. But I'd never, I'd never experienced it. So that was the first, the first Fabrang. And it allowed for an openness to a degree about the, uh, the, the subject and the conversation. You see, the challenge is, the challenge is that in many circles, this issue was never discussed. And there was a reason for it. There was a, even a justified reason for it. Because spiritual mentors felt that sometimes, you know, not talking about it, not, you know, paying so much attention to it, or focusing on it allows people, so to speak, to move on. The challenge we have in our generation is nobody's moving on. People are learning all about their sexuality and about their hormones and about their addictions from their fe- own feelings and from all that is available out there without having any guidance and mentorship that really helps them understand who they are, what they're dealing with, understand how to look at at these things, how to grow from it, how not to sink 
and become submerged in, into the abyss of endless shame and self-loathing and loneliness and the fact that I'm the devil and I am evil incarnate and I'm going to be punished for eternity and God hates me forever and all types of feelings about identity that sometimes crush people's lives in horrible ways and affect their marriages years later sometimes in very destructive ways. And it's so common and there's so little for people, so many few places for people to turn to and get just a real education about this in a way that is soothing and in a way that they do not have to feel that they're the most horrible creatures who ever walked this planet. So that's why we live in a time that is it's very important to be delicate and sensitive, but so important to give people this vital information about such an intimate part of ourselves, maybe the most intimate and maybe the most powerful part of ourselves. Our sexual drives are, from a Jewish perspective, one of the deepest, if not the deepest human drive. It's our drive that connects us to God. It's the ability to procreate. It's the ability to continue life. There's no drive that is as powerful and as vital to creation as our sexual drive. I understand the fear in um, in or wanting to be delicate when approaching the subject. But what's the reason why so many avoid it? Do they think that they're going to introduce the subject to someone? Like they think there's possibly a room full of teenagers that don't know pornography exists. Is that is that what they're thinking or that it's going to be an okay? What is the concern? I, I, it's hard for me to know for sure, but I think it's a few things. Number one, I think there's a naive assumption among many that maybe nobody really knows Nobody really knows about it. So why should I bring up a topic that is sensitive and challenging and difficult? Which, of course, is quite naive. Some people think, maybe even people know about it, but let's not make an issue out of it. So they won't make an issue out of it. You know, you stumbled, you failed. Yeah, that's what people do. Get back up and live a productive life. Let's talk about things that are positive and productive and inspire people. Why do we have to go to those places of darkness? Other people, frankly, don't know how to talk about it. They don't know what to say. They don't know what to say. Other people feel it's not Jewish to talk about it. It's filthy. It's immoral. Whatever the consideration is, in today's generation, there are hundreds and thousands of young, beautiful souls who are suffering terribly because no great mentors, educators, parents, teachers have guided them in in this field. And they're left literally to be educated by YouTube and by other forms of social media that uh, everybody knows about. So, Has your perspective shifted on the topic? Was there a time you were in that camp or in that camp more than you are now? Or- well, I personally, at a, you know, shortly after my marriage, I, I, I started to teach in yeshivas, and I would make it a point to try to allow the students to open up and feel that they're not going to be judged, and they can talk about anything. That was one of my biggest objectives. I was for many years a Rosh Hashiva, a Mashpia. I taught Gemara, I taught Hasidus, I taught Halacha, I taught many subjects, but my objective was to allow students to open up. So I started to realize what's going on in their inner hearts and their inner worlds, besides the fact that I have my own struggles as a person, but I started to hear what everyone is dealing with in my class and in the Yeshiva. And when you have dozens of students opening up to you, literally, I realized that for nobody to address this is literally allowing all these people to drown in a sea of endless guilt and shame. And sensitive souls are so sensitive. And 
you know, people would come to me before their marriages and shortly after their marriages and discuss the effects of porn addiction, how it's playing out in the bedroom. And then I realized, yes, we should not, uh, you know, some people like sensationalism. And the more, you know, the more, uh, what's the word, explicit language they could use, the more excited they get. So I, I was never a fan of that. I very appreciate what the Gemara says to speak Lush and Nakia, refined language. And I also understood that there's so many different types of boys and girls, and you have to be sensitive. But still, to ignore it is, 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 is worse than anything. You have to know how to talk, when to talk. If you remember that night in Montreal, I waited till 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and the reason, I'll tell you why. Because if I would have started with that conversation, it would have become sensationalism. Oh, Rabbi Jacobson came and right away, you know, got right. Instead of talking about the Parsha or Hanukkah or Purim or whatever the topic was, he went right into uh, <laughs> the, the, the point. You know, it becomes, it's another news story. And, and that's the antithesis of what I wanted. I wanted that people who are really dealing with it intimately should be, I should be able to touch their souls and hearts. So I waited till 5.30 in the morning. 5.30 in the morning, whoever didn't have to be there wasn't there. Whoever didn't really connect to me wasn't there anymore because you have better things to do 5 in the morning. You go to sleep. And people like Ellie Nash and some of your friends remained and we had a very, very deep heart-to-heart talk. And in fact, there were some other people in your class or in the yeshiva who over the years came over to me and shared with me how positively impactful it was that for the first time they heard that they are not destined to eternal damnation and hell because God's hatred to them is worse than his hatred to anybody, including... That's where I was with it. Yeah. You know, you're worse than than Putin in in today's vernacular. It's it's like, how could you get worse than Putin? But you're worse than Putin. Right, I heard a Holocaust. You're killing millions of people, and we'll, we'll get into some of those subjects. I think what's important to know you, is you don't you lose the world to come. Your Gehenna forever. Your family is destroyed forever. And uh, and what what are you doing to people's lives? It's 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 very it's heart wrenching. And till today, I get many many emails. I would say I get probably every day an email on this topic. Sometimes five, sometimes ten, sometimes twenty. And I just see, so I answer people, I answer people, and it's just very important for people to have an address to be able to open up with their name or anonymously, and uh, we should be able to talk about it. So that may be the difference in how you came about to your opinion, it's just you invited people to speak openly about what was going on, and then you heard, and then once you understood the truth, yes. then how can you not, yeah. not address it? Can I challenge you a little bit? Absolutely. <laughs> Is that for your game? It would so not in, be a Jewish uh, program if uh, that wouldn't right. happen. Right. So in leading up to this event, we went back and forth on the name, and the event, the name we came up with was The Shame of Porn Addiction. But there was, there was also a, um, a version yeah. that went out, The Shame of Addiction. Yeah. Right. Was that, was that with your knowledge? Did you want that? Is that Lush and Nakia? Is that maybe adding to the shame? Very good. I'm trying to understand. Yeah, I take responsibility for it. I asked my staff to send out such a version. And the reason was because from the people I deal with, I know that some people, they get... I once heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe a very interesting story. He said that during the Bayless trial, there was a famous trial in 1913. There was a Jewish Ukrainian Jew, Mendel Bayless. He was accused of murdering a Christian child to use his blood for Pesach. And it was a huge trial that basically consumed all of Tsarist Russia, 1913, more than 100 years ago. And the Rebbe said 
that the prosecution brought to the testimony a letter from one of the rabbis proving that Jews are not allowed to use blood. It's forbidden. And he said that this rabbi's testimony is disqualified. Why? Because this rabbi is guilty of treason. The rabbi said that he's a moirid b'malchus. He's abusing the czar. What happened? The stamps had a picture of the czar on them. And he said, look, the stamp was placed upside down. Which means this rabbi doesn't have the most minimal respect for the czar, czar Nicholas of Russia. How in the world are we going to accept his testimony? So the Rebbe said then, he says, look what they did. There was a letter full of content, <clears throat> but because the stamp by mistake was upside down, he was delegitimized and they had a wonderful excuse, treason, he loathes the czar. The point, of course, is we live sometimes in a culture where people will use any excuse in the world to allow themselves to distance themselves from things they have to hear. One of them is the way you talk. And I knew that there's even 10 people who are probably addicts, or they struggle with it on some level, or they have children who struggle with it. But when they see the word porn addiction, they'll right away say, oh, the stamp is upside down. He's <laughs> embarrassing the czar. It's not how religious Jews speak. We can't listen to this. This is not going to be a Torah program. It's going to be a, a, a YouTube, secular, non-Jewish, immodest program. And I did. I, I feel empathy for them. I didn't want to give them that excuse <laughs> to be able to distance themselves from the program. And I hope once they're on, they won't necessarily go they won't off leave. too fast. That's I why I did from, it. I heard from a therapist once, name is Dr. Carol Clark in Miami, that of the alcoholics and drug addicts that she's worked with, over 50%, and she said that's being generous, are... Over 50% are sex addicts as well, unidentified, right? And porn addicts going into the, uh, the general category of um, sex addiction. So, and in my experience with addiction, what I understand about it is the process addictions, the one like gambling, the one like eating, the one uh, sexual behaviors, those are far more powerful than the substance ones because they, they're much more difficult to pull apart from our lives. We can say, okay, no more alcohol. But these things, we don't say no more food. We say healthy food. We don't say no more sex. We say healthy sex. So it's a much, much more challenging. So I think it's okay. According to her, right? What do you say? Um, the majority is the entirety. Over 50% of addicts. So if you put an ad out for addicts, you can Ruba get Kukula, sex yeah. addicts in the, uh, in the room. So, so my maybe question Ellie, is, yeah. who are we speaking to? Are we speaking to the person who's struggling and doesn't want to watch porn anymore? Are we talking to the person who watches, doesn't think it's so bad? Who's, who's the audience? I would say the audience includes both of these demographics, people who really are not interested in watching, but they feel that they have an addiction and it's overwhelming. People who may not sure that it's so bad, they rationalize it and they say it's fine. Everybody does it, you know. So many of my friends do it. We all grew <laughs> up with it. And I think there's a lot of rationalization. I think we're talking to them. And I also, I think, also think we're talking to parents and educators as a preemptive medicine to understand what's going on, to understand what their children, what their teenagers may be dealing with, to understand what they can preempt, how to talk about it. I think we want to include all of these demographics. Right. So in general, I mean, I'm happy to speak. In general. I don't take a, a typically a moral position Obviously, as a rabbi, you have to. I don't think a moral position on pornography. I think there's certain aspects of it that we could. I, in general, talk to someone who says, I, I'm done. I don't want to watch porn anymore. 
I'm not trying to convince anyone not to. If it works for them, it works for them. God bless. Not from a morals perspective, just from who I feel I can uh, I can influence. But the person who's done, who's, as I have, smashed laptops because they don't want to watch porn again, and then somehow they find themselves back there, that demoralization, that's certainly who I am. Um, who I speak to, but by all means, let's talk to the, uh, let's talk to those. So what would you say to those who rationalize porn and say, it's not so bad. Maybe it keeps me away well, from I worse would behaviors. Love, I think I would, you know, there's nothing as powerful as experience. All lectures in the world pale in comparison to experience. So I'm wondering if you, who, uh, <laughs> you know, was one of the, you really had the courage many years ago, and I'm sure it was not easy to be able to really address this topic from a very personal point Absolutely. of view perspective yeah. would you yeah, really can... be able to give us some form of summation of your own story both the sadder parts of the story and your journey towards a place of enlightenment and and recovery which i'm sure is a constant and ongoing work i don't think you know you snapped your finger and you got out of it <laughs> right it's, it's also not you know you don't try to go to zero with this you do your best i would say at this point just for i'll start at the end I've watched pornography one time in the last five and a half years. So I've, I've sought out pornography. Sometimes you bump into it. Unfortunately, you can't, you can't prevent that. We live in a world, but to actually go and one time in five and a half years when it was, there were, so I actually heard from you many years ago, your story about molestation that I know that I I never heard from you yet. This, your story about porn addiction. I'm going to share, I'm going to, I'll share the whole story. So I'll share where I got kind of started into it, my introduction, because I think this is important, the the ways we're introduced sex. The very first conversation I had about sex was someone three or four years older than me brought an encyclopedia and I remember showing a picture and it wasn't what he said and what I saw. It was the the hiding, you know, it was the shame. The, the second sex was introduced, was introduced with this level of shame. Remember where I was in my backyard, there were these steps and he's like, oh, look, I found this thing. And he thought it was so cool to show me a, uh, uh, a book in the encyclopedia. It was an encyclopedia talking about sex with a picture. How old were you, you Ellie? Six, seven, over that age. But, and he was probably nine or 10. What? Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize you were so young. Yeah. My introduction to sex like that world, like I've shared, I've shared my story of sexual abuse. This was after the after this conversation, which I mentioned, uh, where I was sexually abused over a three-year period, which I've shared that story. And if those have questions, I'm happy to go into that, but I don't want to make it about that. I have talks on YouTube about it and other places where I talk about the uh, Somebody groomed you, right? Abuse. It was somebody grooming you. Was this like Correct. A, Correct. Over uh, a three-year period, he groomed a me. A counselor, between... a teacher, a relative? I don't want to. I don't want to identify him just because I feel it's been resolved. But it was a an older boy, so he was six years older than I was, and uh, he groomed me between uh, sports, shul, just giving me the love and attention that I. Uh, and this is from what age? Felt great to what as age? a child from the from ages what? of about eight to ten, so say fourth grade to sixth grade, and and of eventually course you never he, told your parents. You never told your parents. No, but I'll tell you something. I, was, I, I didn't tell anyone until I was 23 years old. I went to therapy, and the therapy identified certain struggles that I was having with being abused. But although I kept a secret for a long time, I did tell the, per, the first person who asked. 
which is, and I went to therapy when I was 12 or 13. I got into a fight with a kid in yeshiva and the kid said he's going fry because of me. So <laughs> my punishment was I had to learn Tanya Balpeh and to go to therapy. And to go to therapy. And when I went to a therapist, I'm actually surprised in hindsight, I guess it was a from therapist, I think in Borough Park or Flatbush was a from therapist. I'm kind of surprised in hindsight that she didn't ask the question. But I get I'm sure now they would, right? Abuse maybe wasn't known. This I was born in 1985, this story 1998, 1999. I guess abuse wasn't really spoken about in the from community. Much, much less. Much, much, much less. Yeah. I wasn't asked the question, but this doctor, Dr. Norman Goldwasser in Miami, I went to him when I was 23 years old, and within 15 minutes he asked me, Were you sexually abused? And uh so that was that story. Shortly after that, actually, Dr. Goldwasser sent me to a um uh, one of these, uh, you know, he's a, a psychologist would do all these tests, you know, the Rorschach tests and these MMPIs and to give you a personality thingamajiggy. And he had showed me years later what it said. And one of those was that there's the potential for sexual acting out behaviors. So he had introduced it a few times in my therapy, but I'm skipping a little bit in the story. When I first got introduced to pornography, he didn't start with pornography. As a matter of fact, what I remember is it was almost too brazen, right? Some of those pictures, like nudity is like too brazen as a, as a child. When I was 12 or 13 years old, different magazines, whether it was, um, I don't know, catalogs with the lingerie sections or things like that. And I became obsessed. There was something, the only word I can describe, you could describe it as complete safety. It was like all the noise stopped. These magazines would show up and I made sure in a three bedroom house, one of nine kids, I made sure to have a stash everywhere. So at 12 or 13 years old, I would have clippings in different places. I'd have magazines in different sections. I wanted to make sure I needed, not wanted to, I needed to make sure that I had a stash somewhere and everywhere. Eventually, I think my sister was a lucky winner of a computer at a 10 yacht auction. So my clippings went from um, pictures on the computer that I would save and store in different areas of the computer. So I, you know, you're going back to dial up internet. So, you know, accessing a picture was a pretty big deal. It's not to be taken lightly. So once you already access it, you don't want to lose it. So I would save it and I'd store it in different computers. And looking back, the obsession. How old are you when you started with this obsession? 13, 14. Wow. At this stage. And looking back, I mean, it was a full on obsession. It was to the point of, uh, using you know using those words i needed it i i had stashes everywhere stashes on the on the computer physical stashes for shabbos i was set up obviously going to yeshiva when i started going away to yeshiva was a little bit more difficult but you know sometimes the occasional porn magazine would make it around yeshiva or you'd accidentally find it you didn't know who it was and you do a non chassidish geneva but there was some some somewhat access to that where really got out of control. And that's one of the questions I have for you is how you're kind of seeing it progress. I'm sure it's much worse today, the problem than it was when I was in yeshiva. Cause I think, I mean, if you hear my story, what I needed to do to access pornography was jump through major hoops. I'm talking, watching pornography in a home with a lot of siblings on a desktop computer to wait till people were asleep. I mean, it wasn't an easy feat. It was dial up internet. Now we have a smartphone. We can access unlimited pornography very, very easily. Anyone could. So I can't imagine how my addiction would have morphed if I was dealing with it today. Eventually, as I got older and I 
got out of Yeshiva. I mean, it was, you know, open season. I had no limitations, no restrictions, nothing to hide. And it was, you know, on my computer. And it got to the point where it was a daily practice. Morning and evening and oftentimes in between. In my case, and again, I don't know if this is where we want to take the conversation, but it often happens with people. You know, how do you, how do you know something is an addiction when it's constantly increasing, right? The dose that once worked stops working now. And you need to increase it either in frequency or variety or intensity. And I did all three. And eventually the pixels turned to people. And the screen wasn't enough. And, you know, it went from there to strip clubs to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We don't... All the details are, aren't uh, necessarily important. Ironically, when I went to therapy for my abuse, then some of these stuff came up. Like I mentioned, the doctor was asking these questions, but I always pushed it aside because I don't know, it was working for me. I said, oh, it's not a problem. In my mind, I wasn't an addict. I didn't drink. I didn't drug. I didn't gamble. I worked. I, I joke, I had the best and worst of addictions, the most respected and the least respected. Right? I had the work addiction and the sex addiction. So for me, I didn't even identify it as something possible to be addicted to. And I just continued doing it. It wasn't until I met my wife and we started dating and I had a two or three month reprieve. When we first met, it was like, you know, the world stopped. And I had that same peaceful feeling I had from once watching pornography. Now I had just from being in relationship with her. But that period ends. And when I went back afterwards, then the shame really kicked in. And that's where it really, really, really spiraled um, out of control. It was uncontrollable on all levels. And from there is when I entered a recovery program of addiction. How old were you at the time? How old um, were you? So where are we up to? So when I started the therapy, which really was starting with the abuse, I went with business issues. That was 23. By the time I met my wife, she's listening in. So I don't want to, you know, I, I want to know the date and the year and everything perfectly. I think I was 27. Wow. And by the time I really started addressing it, I was 28. Today I'm 36. And uh, I entered. What caused the shame so badly at that point? Like, why, when you were 19, what, ha- what, what was the cause of the shame? There were levels of shame before. Let me be clear. There were levels of shame before. It was a secret, it was something I didn't want anyone to know. Also, the dependency on it, I had seen it. Uh, one, one story I like to share is when I was. Um, 22 or so, I got an eye infection. I went to a doctor and the doctor said that I had a corneal ulcer and he was concerned that it may not respond to antibiotics. He wants to see me every day. He's like, make an appointment with my office every day for the next 14 days. So I see how it's reacting to what I'm giving you. And I left his, and he said, if it doesn't react well, it's, you have to take this seriously because corneal ulcers could cause blindness. When he said the word, I knew that I was going blind and why I was going blind. I was going blind because of the porn I watched. And I promised I, if God existed, you know, where I was at that time, if Hashem existed, I promised never to watch porn again. I'm being punished for this. Eventually my eye healed. And so did, uh, and with, you know, with the corneal ulcer, that went down the toilet. And so did my promise. A week later I was watching. So for all those who think that the answer to this is more condemnation and more, you know, what is like the Musser approach? It may work for some, but for someone who's addicted, it's not certainly not for where I was. It it wasn't the approach, and eventually I, think, I started. I, I think I think Ellie, it's good to I think explain why that is because, as somebody as a wise person once said, addiction is not the problem. Addiction is the solution. Mm-hmm. 
we have to identify what the problem is. If I tell you you're going to watch porn, you're going to get blind, you're going to become deaf, you're going to lose your limbs, it may scare the living daylights out of you. And even if it's true, I'm not addressing the problem. There's a loneliness. There's a shame. There's an inner emptiness that's not being addressed. And addiction is not the problem. Addiction is the solution where Correct. I'm running to because of that loneliness. So, so scaring the person is not really dealing with their issue. A week later... They desperately need this, like oxygen. You tell somebody, if you continue to breathe, if you continue to go to the bathroom, you're going to burn. So what do you want me to do? So I could shoot myself, and then I won't have to go to the bathroom. Exactly. The, the best analogy I've seen for the way I felt was watching someone who's trapped under a rock, you know, cutting off their leg. So you just see them cutting off the leg. You say, why are you cutting off the leg? I'm cutting off my leg to save the rest of me. And that's, that's for addiction, it certainly is. So yeah, the worse you feel... What's the solution? Back, back to what made you feel it's the coping, better. It's the coping mechanism of survival. It's the Correct. reptilian brain, the reptilian brain trying to survive. I do want to share one more part of the story and then go back. How, so how did I come to yeah. speaking Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, it's good. You said how you went back straight and the, the eye became better and you went right back into the... I went right back into it. Right, that was a shame. When I, when I met my wife, the shame that time around when I, now I was lying about it. And it wasn't just like I had mentioned, pixels went to people. So there was many other things that I was addressing beyond the pornography. Ironically, the other stuff were much easier to stop than porn because porn, you have all the, especially for me, I would say the pixels are keeping me away from the people, right? So there was a lot that I had to pull apart. It was much more difficult to stop pornography than, than uh, some of the other behaviors. A, the, um, the way we can rationalize it and B, the accessibility. The accessibility is absolutely, I mean, it's, you know, it's someone walking around with a flask the whole day telling them don't drink alcohol. I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's a very, very, very difficult um, problem to, to tackle. And it's so Let me talk about to tell this to people. You know, you have a 14-year-old boy, a 17-year-old boy, his hormones are raging. You have to have compassion for the struggle. Oh, it's huge. Yeah, We all needed compassion. We need compassion for ourselves. And we must have compassion for our children and for others. Because without compassion, we're not going to help anybody. You have there's, to have compassion. There's an organization called Fight the New Drug, right? What, is, what do they do? They fight pornography. What's new, what's new about pornography, right? It's been going on forever. But they say the way it is now, it's new. It's on a different level. And I would say even what I dealt with, I don't feel like I can talk to teenagers today about about what they went through because my experience, like I said, was so different. I don't, it's crazy. I mean, to be 13, 14 years old with the hormones, yeah, that, that, that are going on then, plus not having the impulse control fully developed and everything else and having the smartphones, it's, it's a real uphill battle. So definitely a lot of compassion. I have compassion for myself for how difficult it was then and- Imagine so almost becoming blind doesn't stop your addiction. What does stop your addiction? So before I before I answer that question, let me answer, let me talk about why I started talking about this publicly because I think it's uh, it's important. So you heard, you've heard me speak about my abuse, and very likely in that speech I referenced addiction, but I just said addiction. I didn't say what the addiction was because it was still shame attached to it. So. You and some of the audience may have heard the name Rosh Lowe. 
So Rashlo and I, a few years ago, worked on this idea of mic drop where people sharing their stories and things like that. And really what I was coming from was seeing how healing it was for me to share my story about abuse. Anyway, where did I get the introduction to Rosh is I brought him into my company to say, let's train employees on sharing their story with each other. It's great team building. It's a great skill. And it's not a bad uh, skill to learn how to speak publicly. (laughs) Right. And Rosh asked me, what are you going to talk about? It was the second time we're doing this as a company, maybe even the third time. And I said, you know what? I think I'm finally ready to talk to my company about my struggle with porn addiction. And you should have seen this guy's face. He's like, Ellie, you can't. You're the CEO of the company. You can't talk about porn addiction. They're going to laugh you out. And to me, it was like, of all people, Rosh Lowe, the guy who runs around the world telling people they have to share their story. You're telling me this is a subject I can't talk about. Someone can get arrested, can talk. Someone can do horrible. It doesn't matter. You can talk. You can talk. If I'm struggling with a porn addiction, this is the one story not to share. I said, you know what, Rosh? I'm not sharing it. I'm not going to share it at the company event. I'm going to share it at the biggest stage I know. I'm sharing it on the TED stage. And that's how that's how that talk came about. And now it's been seen 4 million times and now over 4 million times. And now somewhat of a, um, you, you know, these kind of conversations happen as a result. But it was recognizing how insidious the shame is around the subject, even for the people who who are uh, on the forefront of these kind of subjects. Because you want to know what does work. Um, almost every single person I've worked with to overcome porn addiction with them, I've encouraged them to write a thank you and a goodbye letter to pornography. So I actually wonder as a as a rabbi, what you think of such an idea? Do you, did I say enough or do I need to explain it more? I would like to explain more just to make sure <laughs> we understand. So I'll, I'll give a specific example. So from guy was working with who's, um, he called me when his son, he found that his son had an illness. And when he found out his son was born with an illness, he felt so guilty because I don't know where these teachings come from. And you got to help me with some of these, these things where they come from, where they're sourced. Cause what he told me at the time was one of the punishments for pornography is to have unhealthy children or something like that. Right. So he was convinced that his punishment for all the porn he watched was now his son was born with a, uh, a genetic defect of sorts or something else. And he was so ashamed and embarrassed. So what do you think he did? He hired a prostitute. Porn was not enough. He went from pixels to people. And it was at that point in time that he crossed that line of from guy that he reached out to me. So I, sat, so I spoke to him and I said, what did porn do for you? What were the benefits? What did you get from it? In other words, where can you say thank you to pornography? And he really, really struggled with this. What do you mean? I'm a from person. It's a terrible thing. It's an Avera. I said, I understand it's an Avera. But if someone was starving and they ate a ham sandwich, it may be wrong, but it did something for you. It filled, it filled you up. It gave you energy. What did, the porn, what did the pornography do for you? Why did you keep going back there as a child? Why do you keep going back there today as an adult? And it was a very difficult conversation just for him to get his head around looking at pornography that, that, that way. But, but without fail, everyone who I've been part of their journey of recovering from porn addiction has had to write or write a thank you letter, right? Acknowledge the benefits that porn gave to them, but like a friend who's overstayed their welcome goodbye as well. So thank you. 
and goodbye. And then to seek out all of those benefits that I'm enumerating here. I'm not just saying thank you. I'm actually going into detail. You helped me during my times of loneliness. You helped me during my times of desperation. You helped me when I was bored. And this is how you helped me. Now I'm going to try to solve those in a healthier way and a more productive way. I, I frankly think it's brilliant. And not just brilliant. I think it's, it's, it's very authentic. Meaning, you know, a wise man once said, don't talk about the addiction. Talk about the pain. Mm-hmm. Addiction, talk mm-hmm. about the pain. That's what the thank you letter does. The thank you letter is my addiction was my coping mechanism. It was my survival skill. It was something that actually helped me in crazy situations. So I have to acknowledge that in order to be able to acknowledge the pain, the void that was being filled by the addiction. And then I can say, how am I feeling, filling that void today so I don't have to go to porn? So, so the from a religious hangup he was having of saying, this is an Avera. How can I acknowledge? That's, that's where he was struggling. Saying, you're asking me to say thank you to this Avera. It's a very, it's, it's, it, you're not saying, no, you're not saying, again, addiction is not the problem. It's the solution. That's the key. We got to find out the pain. You're not thanking the fact, you're not being grateful for the fact that I was a porn addict. You're saying thank you to your brain that devised a coping mechanism for you to survive and that actually served you well. Tragically, you had to go there in order to save yourself. It's a tragedy, but could you have compassion for the tragedy? Let's talk about something else for a moment. How many of us detach from our emotions when we are six years old because of our own anxiety because of the fact that we are emotionally neglected. We have attachment disorder and it's too painful. So we just go offline with our emotions and we cannot connect emotionally. One day you have to say thank you. Your brain was trying to save Mm -hmm. you from pain. Is it a good thing that I had to detach? No, it's a tragic thing. But this tragedy is what saved me. Now tell the addiction, you served me well. You did what you were trying to do. You kept me alive. But you know what? Now I want to actually live. I don't want to just stay alive. I don't want to be a reptile or a lizard. I want to be a real person that all the parts of my brain can function together. My amygdala brain, my limbic brain, my prefrontal lobes. I can be a fully cognizant, conscious, aware, intimate person. I can be honest. I can be authentic. I don't have to run to porn addiction to address my pain. You know why? Because I'm an adult. I'm mature. I have courage. I'm going to observe what is happening inside of me, what is being triggered. I'm going to address it in healthy, productive, and meaningful ways through relationships that help build my self-esteem and really fill my void and don't cause me to run from my void. I, I, I... I completely, uh, I completely appreciate very much your, your, your perspective. Say thank you, a thank you letter and a goodbye letter. Anyway. In fact, I would argue that you can't really give a goodbye letter if you don't give a thank you letter. Correct. Because it's an external goodbye. It, people don't, addiction is about, we're going to use here Hasidic terminology. You grew up in a Hasidic community. Perfect. Addiction, there's chitzonius of addiction and there's the pnimius of addiction. The chitzonius of addiction, the external facade of addiction is porn, gambling, alcohol, heroin, cocaine, prostitutes, clubs, binging, drinking, kiddush clubs, anger, whatever, whatever it is. That's the outer facade. The pnimius of addiction is the neshama. It has a soul. Addiction has a soul. 
There is a yearning. I heard from Dr. Tversky. We were together with Dr. Tversky on a Shabbaton, no? In Boca, you were there? I think you were there, no? Yeah, I was in there. Florida? Yeah. Dr. Tversky, all of Hashalem, Rabbi Abraham. Dr. Abraham Tversky was There's psychiatrist. There's one coming up soon. Yeah, who passed away last year in Jerusalem. Right. And I remember he told me in Boca, he said, I asked him, Dr. Tversky, you've been dealing with recovery for 60 years. Could you sum up, sum up what you learned in 60 years? I don't have patience to go learn for 60 years. And he said something so profound. He said, the addicts among us are the most spiritual people. Because what happens is their void is much deeper than everybody else. They're very sensitive souls. So he said, most of us can dismiss our voids through easy distractions. They can't, because the void is deep. <laughs> so they have to go to deep addiction. So I could look at addiction and say, well, you're an addict. Or I could say, Wow, you need a deep spiritual connection with life. You need a deep connection with your spouse, with your friends, with your God, with your soul. Can we address that? And without the thank you letter, you're not addressing that. You're just looking at addiction from a very external point of view, and it's going to come back next week. Carl Jung, in a, uh, in a letter with one of the first, I think they called him AA, AA number three. So Carl Jung had a correspondence about him with AA number one or two, I think, Bill Wilson. And he's, he was a patient of Carl Jung, AA number three. And he said to him, he said that in order for this, Carl Jung was writing, in order for this guy to heal, he needed a profound spiritual awakening, everything to shift. And he, I, I believe his words were, the operating principle here is spiritus contra spiritum. We need spirituality to counteract the spirit, the spirit of alcohol. So the word, the word calling alcohol the spirit is perfect. So, Yes. It's, it's been my experience as well, watching addicts in that way. You know, the amount of people I found who've rejected from cut, you know, it's, oh, these guys are fry, right? They, they want the easy way out, but then embrace the life of the 12 steps, which the 12 steps, <laughs> I know it's not full beard and hat and jacket and white and everything else, but it's more demanding. You don't get, you, you don't get the, um, you don't get the gaps, you know? <laughs> You don't get between 9 and because, 10 p.m. I'm offline. Because to say about them that they rejected Judaism is the farthest things from the truth. They were actually looking for authenticity. They needed real Judaism. They couldn't deal with hypocrisy. They couldn't deal with orthodox norms that makes you look good, but inside you're empty and there's no honest conversation and there's no real relationship with yourself or with God. The 12-step program actually gave them an opportunity to experience their own spirituality in a much deeper way. So it's actually these people, So, so I you think, believe the addicts uh, deserve the microphone? I, I, not thank only you, they deserve you. it, I think all <laughs> of us, I think all of... Dr. Tor- I asked Dr. Tversky, are you an addict? I asked him. He said, ah, I wish I was. <laughs> I said, why? He said, because I go, to, I go to recovery meetings, he says, and I, it's not, I'm not an addict. He said, unfortunately... He said, I'm addicted to self-loathing and self-shame. I have issues with self-confidence. But he says, I'm not a classic addict uh, as some of the other people. He says, but you know what? There's something I don't have because of it. He says, my, my doctor's an addict in recovery. My dentist is an addict in recovery. Even my barber's an addict in recovery. <laughs> he says, I only trust them. <laughs> because they you know have to who, work. Was, <laughs> who said, for an addict, spirituality is, for the average person, spirituality is a luxury. For the addict, spirituality is a necessity. Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's, it's always about the void. I'll never forget, I was sitting at home one day, this is many, many years ago, and a young man came in, grew up in a very orthodox community, went to yeshiva for many years. He was married with children. 
he broke down sobbing. He says, everything is over. I said, what? And he shared with me his story. He was molested as a child by a sibling, and he went on to molest others. He went on to molest others. At the age of 14, he was a full-blown, full-blown porn addict. He would leave yeshiva every day, and he did it for years. He got married, but the addiction just continued. And he said that now his wife discovered it. His wife discovered everything. The porn and the clubs and the prostitutes and the other women. And to see a young man, 31 years old, breaking down. At my dining room table, I'll never forget, in the middle of the day, just sobbing. And you look at this person, and you know what, Ellie? I have to say, I did not have an ounce of judgmentalism. This kid was molested at the age of six. Tell me, how much free choice did he have? How much free choice did he have? Nothing. When he experienced puberty, his brain was screwed up. You'll forgive me. The first time he went to the mikveh, as a teenager, he couldn't see other people's bodies in ways that other kids see it. So the, brain, the brain is affected. We know today. We know today. It's not just molestation. If a child is exposed to certain elements of pornography in third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, or bullying, or other forms, even if it's not abuse and sexual molestation directly, when puberty develops, it often completely skews the ways they see their sexuality. And the worst is, they're completely confused. Many of them decide they're homosexual. They decide they're transgender. They decide they're girls, they're boys. They don't know what they are. It creates so much pain. And you look at the person. The the kid didn't have a choice. The kid didn't have a choice. And I have to tell myself, this is not about him. This is about God. And if you believe in God, you have to say, God sent him on this harrowing journey for some great light that's going to come out of him. And all I could do was I hugged him and I said, I'll be here for you. And you know, he got divorced. His wife said, out. He got divorced and he went into recovery. This is seven years ago he went into recovery. He lied to me also for a year. He kept on, he was so addicted. He was just lying to me. He was lying and lying. But I have to tell you, he's been seven years sober. He goes to meetings a few times a week. And it's really that I meet a person with so much authenticity and spiritual integrity. It's those people who can look you in the eyes and don't blink and they can talk about everything because they have been in the worst places. And I have to tell you that yesterday I reached out to him and I said, you have been in real recovery for seven years. He remarried a beautiful marriage, and his first wife, it really, it's a nice ending. I mean, it's a tragic story because there was a divorce. It was a, a tragedy. But but they, they both recreated their lives, which is amazing. And I asked them, I said, what would you want to, what would have you wanted to hear when you were in addiction or when you were at least struggling to come out of addiction? And he told me a few things that were very meaningful that I heard from him over the years. You know, he said the first thing is, He says, I want you to know that even though I was an addict for for decades, not for years, for decades, the fact is there are ways to deal, there are ways to heal. But remember, it's the hardest addiction to, it's the hardest addiction to break. So I know people with years of recovery in AA, but they can't go three days sober when it comes to sexual addiction. 
They can't. And process it's important. It's a different animal. Yeah, it's a process. And it's important, you know, sometimes we celebrate victories of a year, two years. And I say, you were 15 minutes sober, celebrate it. You were sober for two hours, make a l'chaim. Make a l'chaim. Right. Give yourself a standing ovation. I was sober for two hours. You know why? You are in Ukraine. The Russian army is fighting you. You are bruised. You're bloody. You're in a battle. You're not a loser. You're in combat. You have serious struggles to combat. Give yourself credit. Have compassion for yourself. Identify how real the battle is. And then you will also realize that you have very, very deep resources. This fellow also told me, he said, I want you should know that a life without it, without this constant need for porn, is a miracle beyond miracles. And also, he says, you have to tell the wives. The wives often think it's their fault. He says, tell the wives. You can be a supermodel, and you can be the greatest lover in the world, and you can be an amazing woman. Your husband may be sick. He may have a disease. And without his courage and readiness to get cured, you sometimes cannot do anything to cure him. Don't take the blame on yourself and say, I would be a better wife if dinner would be much better, if X, Y, Z would happen in our marriage, all problems would be gone. That's not the case. Another thing I'll he says... a great story. I saw a video once, a, a woman explaining something titled like, why I, why I left the industry, why I left the porn industry. And this woman was explaining why she stopped as a porn star. It's, it connects directly to your last point. And she, she said she walked in once on her boyfriend watching pornography. And she says, here I am thinking that it's because I'm more attractive. Wow. <laughs> Everyone's watching me. Wow. You know, then I walk in and he, the one person that doesn't have to pay that I want to be available to, he's watching someone else. And she, says that, she, was, she, she said it was at that moment that I realized that pornography is not like just about sex. It's much, there's something else going on. It's operating on a different system and I can't feed this. Exactly. The industry. It's not about sex. <laughs> it's about loneliness. You know, the antithesis of addiction, Ellie, is not sobriety. The antithesis of addiction is connection. That's why we're here. <laughs> connection. It's all, it's so, so much. What do you feel about shame? This shame. What do you feel this, about the shame? So you let me titled, let me talk about that. Flyer. Right. Is shame, shame helpful or unhelpful. <laughs> so let me let's let's well, my opinion obviously is that the shame is devastating for the addiction. It's devastating, it's the worst thing, and that's one of the reasons to say thank you. But I want to bring you into that conversation I was earlier with this guy where I was asking him, Hey, write this thank you letter, write this goodbye letter. And he's telling me it says, and I don't know where his source was but his beard was longer than mine was his shirt was whiter than mine was. And he said the, but you have the uh, white keeper, but you have the white keeper. He probably had true. a black one. That is true. At the time, at the time I may not have, have had any, it was just an internal one, but his, he was saying he, he quoted something, right? The reason my children are sick is because I watched pornography. So what we're talking about is nice and wonderful. But when someone has all of these texts, of how your teeth are going to fall out, your breath is going to smell, you're going to die young, you're going to lose, whatever it is, right? All of the horrible things about about um, about spilling seeds. Masturbation, yeah. What, 
what, what, what, I mean, as a, what would you tell that person right there? Obviously I was limited, you know, he, he didn't look at me as a, uh, even though I do have my rabbinical degree, he didn't look at me as uh, a rabbinical figure. So I wasn't able to touch that part of it, but what do you say to someone who's sitting there and has the quotes and, the, you know, everything to, to throw at you? Right. It's a great question. Such a horrible person. It, it, it's a great question, but here's the key issue. The key issue is that the, for what I find in most cases, that I can't say about all, most cases of people that I know that write to me, that share it with me, their addiction has really very little to do with what these texts talk about. Because to put it frankly, very few people's addiction today is coming from a place of maliciousness, of people who say, I, I want to really masturbate. I really want to be an addict to porn. I'm telling you, Ellie, in 99% of cases, their poor brains have experienced a trauma. I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. You're saying that the text that was written is not... is very often not applicable to many of those cases, probably most of them. Why not? So what is the text talking about? Very simple. Take a look at your life. You were six years old when somebody exposed you to pornography. You were eight years old when somebody started to sexually molest you. Can we stop for a moment and say, how many choices did nine-year-old Ellie Nash have What did he know about sex? What did he know about himself? Who decided the trajectory of your life? You were an eight-year-old boy who said, God, I hate you. Judaism, I hate you. I'm going to become a porn addict till I am an adult and I am not going to care about anything. Is that what happened? Of course not. So who is the text referring to? You were a broken, tormented kid alone in the world without anybody being here for you throughout that horrific molestation. Can't we stop and realize where's the sinister motives here? There's somebody who's trying to spill seed deliberately and intentionally. These poor, most of these poor people are desperately looking for some oxygen, for some relief, for something to release me from my, my, my anxiety, my depression, my loneliness, my brokenness, my trauma, my wounds. You think I understand this and God doesn't understand this? <laughs> I, Rabbi YY, understands this, and your creator who created you and loves you unconditionally and, and chose you to come down into this world because he believes you, you think he doesn't understand this? And he looks at you and says, wow, you're evil, you're the devil, you're going to burn in hell, and all your kids are going to die and be blind. So you say, obviously, listen, as 8, 9, 10 years old, you're not going to say that, but you're not going to say that. But someone who's 30 years old and still, like when I was, you know, 28, 29, 30, and I'm still engaging in these behaviors. But when you were... Adam Mudlailam, a person who's responsible true, for his actions. True, But the only way for people to be able to recover is if they actually recognize their power as 30-year-olds. Because many 30-year-olds are still the 8-year-olds. Come on. I'm 49 years old, but when my trauma is triggered, I'm a 6-year-old boy. I'm not 49 years old. We are all little children when it comes to our addictions and our traumas and our wounds. You know this better than anybody else. We are all little, little children. We are vulnerable, broken children, desperate for love, desperate for validation, desperate for connection. You may be 30 years old. You may have a beard that's longer than, I don't know, than anybody's beard. You may be a wonderful scholar. But in terms of your emotional development, in terms of your inner emotional self-confidence and wholeness, you may be a six years old. And the only way to help yourself is if you can actually give yourself compassion 
and observe the triggers that are causing you to go there and realize your wholeness, that your wholeness is actually deeper than your pain, that your infinite value and God's love for you transcends all of your mistakes. And then you can address the addiction from a place of maturity and then you can make choices. You can only make choices when you're not defined by your pain because you identify your wholeness. As long as you don't identify your wholeness, you're a victim to your choices. Freedom is a muscle. You either use it or you lose it. We have to create new neural pathways to have choices. Our neural pathways, especially of an addict, are very, very narrow. You think in one way. You talk one way. Your consciousness follows one direction. Only when you can cultivate a larger version of yourself and you can observe, you can have an eye that observes the triggers, you could say, wow, look what happens when my wife says this to me. Why am I triggered to run away, tell her I'm going to shul and instead go to a Thursday night strip club? You can observe it. You could look at it and you could say, wow, can I see what happened? And then you can actually start making choices. And then one day you'll be lucky enough that those texts will apply to you. You know why? (laughs) Because you're lucky enough to have choice. You're lucky enough to be courageous. You're lucky enough to actually look at your life and say, you know what? Yes, spilling seed is not a good thing. Porn addiction is not a good thing. Masturbation is a serious thing. From a Jewish perspective, from a Jewish perspective, the seed of life has infinite divine power to it because it's the sperm that really creates life and you have to be very sensitive and very respectful. And, and very dignified with it. And also sexuality releases our deepest emotions. And when my emotions are being released through masturbation or porn, I'm never going to become an authentic person because it's just getting released. It's being squandered. Only when I actually don't let it get released and I deal with myself, I deal with my anger and with my pain and with my wounds and with my frustration, do I become a real person. Judaism's opposition to porn addiction, to masturbation, to to prostitution, is not coming because the Torah wants to ruin everybody's life and (laughs) stifle everybody's fun. I know some of us think that way, but the truth is the exact opposite. It's because Torah wants you actually to live a full sexual life, to actually suck the marrow out of intimacy, to actually be able to enjoy intimacy in a deep, real, meaningful, inspiring way that nourishes your body and your soul and your psyche and your heart and your physical and your spiritual. And for that relationship, we all need boundaries. Just like I can't be married to my wife and be interested in every other woman because it's going to compromise my relationship with my spouse. So these are limits that are there to help us maximize our sexuality, not destroy our sexuality. But you know what? You have to reach a place of deep awareness to be able to understand these things. And then you look at these texts and you'll understand them in a different way. It's very unfair to throw this on a 15-year-old, poor kid, who's been exposed in sixth grade to all types of pornography. And now he's in the mikveh in his yeshiva, Hasidic yeshiva. He's 14 years old. He sees other boys. And you know what's happening? Everybody's going to the mikveh to prepare for davening. And you know what he's thinking about? He's thinking about, I want to be with these boys. What do you want from this kid? Can't you have compassion? You're now going to tell this kid that he's going to burn in hell forever. God hates him and all of his kids are going to be sick. That's very cruel. It is. And that, right. So my, my approach has always been to kind of sidestep it. I don't know what, I, I don't know how to address it. I don't speak from that perspective or anything else. You're saying, no, let's integrate it. Of that course text we, is not speaking to you. Have to your integrate it. Of course. Let me tell you something, Ellie. The way the halacha describes porn and masturbation is the most sophisticated and most spiritual truth about it. 
But in order to be able to hear this, you have to come from a place of self-love, self-compassion, a place where you make choices, where you understand what's going on in your life, where you don't feel that you're a valueless. This is a rabbinical mata. ruling. I just want to. I want to be this clear. Is, this I'm is a rabbinical ruling future, that if somebody feels like a doormat, if somebody feels like a valueless, depressed loser, to be able to share with them these laws is a form of spiritual murder. What are you doing to them? You're breaking them more. You already feel like the loser of humanity, the loser of the Jewish people. And what am I telling you? You finally came to me, the rabbi. You opened up, and what am I telling you? I open up the text and you say, let me so tell you what a loser you are. So unfortunately for a lot of us, we know it. You know, we learned Ketzer Shulchan Aruch or whatever it was, I and know, we see some I of know. these things. I, I know the text very well. I know the text. <laughs> and these texts were written by deeply loving spiritual people. But like everything, you have to hear it in context. And the context is somebody who is emotionally solid, somebody who has connection, somebody who has attachment, somebody who doesn't hate themselves. Most of these people are going to porn because they hate themselves. They can't be five minutes with themselves. They've never been honest with anybody in their lives. Their brains have PTSD. Scan their brains and you will see that right. certain parts of their brains are That's offline. what you're saying. This person is choiceless. This person is choiceless, for the most part. You're not saying everyone, blanket ruling, but for the most part, let the me, people me, who are struggling, who I, want to stop. I don't use the word choice, let me say. Their choice is not another person's choice. Their choice that they have at this moment is if they can actually listen to a voice inside of them that tells them there is hope. That's the choice at the moment. And sometimes even that choice doesn't exist. It takes a lot of work to develop choice. Correct. <laughs> you have to be a healthy person. <laughs> To have choices. And it's, it's not so just such time the text doesn't apply to you. I like Ellie, it. Ellie, how many trauma forget it, let's get porn for just one moment. You know how many people are suffering from trauma? Their spouse tells them something. Your husband, your wife, your child. They go crazy. Here's a 45-year-old man. He's actually a millionaire. He gives tzedakah. He's a nice guy. Okay? His wife tells him something, and he goes crazy. He doesn't know why. It's not his wife. He has trauma that it was never dealt with. Now you tell the guy, it says in Svarim that you're not allowed to do this. Dr. Bessel van der Kalk, the author of A Body Keeps the Scores, the leading expert on trauma, told me these words. He says, the worst thing a therapist can tell a patient is, you're not supposed to think this way. He says... Do you think we're trying to think this way? Right. <laughs> Do you think I'm trying to be addicted? You think so? You think I want to ruin my marriage? You think I want to go into the bedroom and think about everybody else besides my wife? You really think so? He's a good guy. We know him. He's generous. He's nice. He'll take his shirt off his back to help a stranger. You think he really wants to destroy his kids? The poor guy is overwhelmed by trauma and nobody ever helped him release it. He doesn't even know that he's overwhelmed by trauma. What we have to do at such moments is compassion, compassion to help people open up and see how big they are, how beautiful they are, how grand they are, so that the molestation, the abuse, the emotional neglect doesn't have to define me for the rest of my life. It's all about awareness, awareness, awareness. Once there's awareness, then let's talk about choices. Then we'll bring in the texts that tell you about paths in life that are very destructive, which includes masturbation, which includes... To be clear, I'm on the same side of you. I'm on the same side as you. The only difference between us is 
I took these texts and kind of put it in a box, sealed it in a closet. You're saying, no, they're there. They're there. We'll learn them later. I, I, I cherish these texts. I read these right. texts. I read these texts and I say, wow, this, these are texts that are describing truths about existence. If you want a good relationship with yourself, if you want a good relationship with God, if you want a good relationship with your spouse, these are ways to live. If I go to masturbation, it affects my marriage. I might say, nah, it's 10 minutes a day. There's a part of my soul that goes into my sperm that's going to be taken away from my wife. You could deny it from today till tomorrow. My marriage will be downgraded. My marriage will not be the same. You know why? Because part of my sexual fulfillment I am getting from, from, from movies, from pornography, from clubs, from websites, from my imagination, from other people, whatever. This is a truth. We may deny it, but it's a fact. And Judaism understood these truths very, very well. That's certainly when I'm married. Even when I'm not married, engaging in acts of masturbation really downgrades your level of life because when I have to deal with my emotions, I become self-aware, I can focus on growth, I can become a real person, I can develop friendships that are based on authenticity and honesty. Masturbation is a cheap, fast way to release my tension without dealing with anything inside of me. And then there's the spiritual elements of masturbation. And there's the spiritual elements of porn. Understanding what's in a seed. Understanding the power of sexuality. Understanding that it's our most divine, holy... It's the most divine, holiest dimension in human life. Sexuality is where you are godlike. It's our ability to create life just like God. And that's why Jewish law is so sensitive to it, not because we love making everybody crazy about sexuality, but because when you're standing face-to-face with God, every detail counts. And that's powerful. But you know what? This is a very mature conversation, and it can only happen with people and between people who are not reacting and being triggered from a place of Deep, deep self-loathing. So your perspective on shame seems to be in line with mine. There's no room for it. It's not helpful. I, I would just make a, a, a distinction between maybe shame and 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 feeling feeling uh, remorse or feeling ashamed. It's important. In other words, if I lied to you, if I lied to you yesterday, we had a conversation and I just lied to you, and today I feel empty. I say, you know what? Why did I have to lie? Why can't I be an honest person? I'm ashamed with myself. And I'm going to go apologize to you or go talk to somebody about it. That's good. That's good. It means I have a moral sensitivity and my soul is almost crying out. You could live a better life. You don't have to lie. That type of, of, of remorse or inner, inner pain is, is good because it's motivating me to mend my mistakes, to apologize, to say I'm sorry. But when shame becomes about, I'm a bad person, I'm a sick loser, then not only is it not good, it actually increases addiction. <laughs> it, 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 it makes me much, much more addicted. You know why? Because all addiction is about a lack of connection. All addiction is about loneliness. And the moment I tell myself I'm the worst person in the world... I go straight to addiction. So not only so let's say someone's not addicted, and that's why I asked at the beginning of the conversation, like, who are we talking to? Let's say someone's not addicted. Someone just, you know, they watch from time to time. 
Right. Here too, you have to be very careful. In, 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 in Jewish spiritual texts, it says that one of the greatest schemes of the Yetzirah, let's call him the toxic forces inside of us, is to make people feel that they are losers. Guilt, what we call guilt. Remorse could be very positive. I did something wrong. I insulted you. I lied. I hurt the feelings of my wife. I hurt the feelings of my mother, my sister. I apologize. Remorse, that's good. It's yeah, not I in feel, line with who I am. It's almost I feel an ashamed of what I did. I, I made bad mistakes. Fine. And I want to apologize. The whole institution of Yom Kippur, of Tshuva, is about that. It's glorious. It means we make mistakes. We're vulnerable. We say, I'm sorry. I remember when the day I got engaged, my brother, who you did many programs with, mm-hmm. Rabbi Simon Jacobson, he told me, he said, these are what he said, why, why? One piece of advice for you. Don't try to be perfect in your marriage. I know you. You're going to make terrible mistakes. All I suggest is don't be perfect, but be accountable. If you make a mistake, show up. Be accountable. Don't run away. Accountability is the name of the game. It's behind all growth. Accountability. Saying, yes, I'm weak. I make mistakes. I was sitting at my desk yesterday and I... I was bored. I was lonely. Maybe I got a big bill from the IRS. <laughs> Maybe mm-hmm. my lawyer billed me. I don't know. And I got into a bad mood. And you know what? An hour later, I was I was doing stupid things. And I, I, I and I'm vulnerable. And I'm broken. And I'm sorry. And I want to figure out how not to do it again. You're a beautiful person. You're a beautiful person. But if it becomes about, I'm just such a bad person. Essentially, I'm 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 I'm. I'm full of self-shame. What's that going to do for you? It's just going to ensure that tomorrow and the next day, you're going to do it again. It's so important to be able to have balance. And you know what? I sometimes find people, even rabbis, they'll sometimes tell me, you know, that once a month they do something that is inappropriate. They're not addicted, but once a right. month. And I say, okay, okay, so learn from it. <laughs> but, 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 but that was once a, once a month, right? For 10 minutes. And all the other parts of the month, month, you didn't do it. Could you give yourself also credit for that? Could you also say, you know what? Once a month, I failed. Okay, okay. So let's let's start to talk about it. Let's learn from it. Let's see what were the circumstances that triggered you. And let's see if next month we could stay away from it. Great, beautiful. You feel bad. But can you also say, most of the month, it was once a month. Most of the month, I was powerful. I was so strong. you say even for that even for that person the harsh text we mentioned earlier doesn't apply. Have you talk about yourself? I know talk about me. What message encourages me to fix my mistake? A message that Rabbi Yy is a liar, is a thick, sick person, an evil person, or a message? You know what? You're you're so full of goodness and potential. You don't need to resort to these senseless acts in order to fill your void. You're, you're capable of so much more. Tell me, which message do you think would be more helpful in everybody's <laughs> life? Yeah. From, right, the biggest no rabbi, from the biggest rabbi to, to, to the youngest child, which one? Now, if there's a person who tells me, no, I want somebody to tell me, you are a piece of filth, and that's what's going to motivate me, fine. Gesundheit. hate. <laughs> if that's what's going to stop you, fine. But... Anybody, I speak to lots of audiences, and I always see when I speak. The devil this, would advocate for the truth, right? <laughs> no, you see clearly when you when you show people their greatness, 
I could see a spark in their eyes. You could see a twinkle in their eyes. They open up, they smile, they're there. People want to be good. We're not bad people. We're good people. We're broken. We're not bad people. I don't know of bad people. There's a few bad people. But I speak to people, they're not bad. Why are you telling them they're bad? They're not bad. They're broken. They don't know how good they are. You know what the worst thing about people is today? You know what the Yitzhahara today of most people is? That they think they're bad. Right. That, that, that's, that's actually what causes most of the problems. I think I'm bad. I, I can't fit in. I can't live up to real expectations. I'm anyway a lost case. So just go, you know, go at least enjoy yourself for the moment. If you're a, you're a lost case anyway, and you're going to burn in hell, at least have somewhat of an enjoyable life in this world. It's completely divorced from the entire essence of Yiddishkeit, and that is God wants you to have a great life in this world, not just in the next world, next world too. <laughs> it's also important. So have, have you seen a difference? I mean, for example, from when I was in yeshiva till now, you still obviously talk to uh, students of that age, 17, 18 years old. So I'm sure you've seen a difference in terms of the problem. Right, it's much. It's, it's got to have accelerated. You can't compare a boy what about sitting the, in yeshiva. What about the educators? Yeah, guys have educators gotten yeshiva. better since my day? Listen, there's still a lot of work, but there's certainly more awareness. The challenge is you have today a boy with a phone. You know, he gets bored, then he goes out to the bathroom. You know, he doesn't need to go find a magazine. He doesn't have to go to a kiosk. He doesn't have to go to a movie theater. He doesn't have to go find the TV. You know, it's in his pocket 24 hours a day. He goes out of the room. He goes into the bathroom. So it's a whole different level. It's a different level completely. The other day I was giving a lecture and somebody was standing online at the end. He starts crying and he says, I'm getting married tomorrow night. He tells me, he's a chassan. A innocent boy, 24 years old. I'm getting married tomorrow night. I said, okay, why are you crying? He says, I've been a porn addict since the age of 12 years old. 12 years every day, Ellie. 12 years every day. He says, I'm going to get married tomorrow. My expectations for my wife are not going to be normal. They're going to be defined by the porn scenes. What am I supposed to do tomorrow night in the bedroom when I come home from the wedding? I looked at him. What I was thinking was, I don't understand. You had to come to me the night before your wedding. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't come two nights earlier. Couldn't come two weeks earlier. The night before the wedding. But that's when he finally felt desperate. He had right. to talk to somebody. I was the first person. First person in the world that he told us to. Wow. I'm looking at this person. I gave him a big hug. I told him, listen, there's going to be work here. But, but your life is not destined you're not, you're not destined to, to, to live a life of hell. As long as you're aware of the challenge and you're aware that a real woman is not, uh, is, not a, is not a prop. A real woman is not a prop in a movie and not a prop on a website and not a prop on a certain, in a certain app and you're aware of it and you're going to work on yourself, good things will happen. I have to say, it's been a while now. The man really, he found somebody to open up to. He found somebody to help him work it through. He's a he's a good kid. He was a good, he is a very good kid. He worked right, that, very hard. That's what I would tell someone like that to reach out. He's already doing amazing. He's talking about it. He's bringing it up. <laughs> yeah, and I have to say, he noticed that, it the day before, not uh, ten years later. Brutal honesty is where miracles begin. We have to stop lying. We lie. We all do that. We lie. I lie. We lie. Human beings lie. <laughs> Tigers don't lie. Cheetahs don't lie. They tell you when they hate you, they bite you, they kill you. We, we know how to lie. This is our profession. But miracles happen when there's brutal honesty. 
You know, we have to find those people in our lives with whom we can be completely honest. You could spill your deepest, darkest secrets. People you trust, people who are confidants. And I also have to say, people, sometimes in the name of honesty, you throw everything on your spouse. You need direction for that. Your wife can't become your therapist. That's not fair. Right, you that's vomiting on another person. You need careful... Yeah. Ah? Yeah, what they say is there's rigorous honesty, which is a program term, rigorous honesty, and then there's brutal honesty. We want rigorous honesty, not brutal Rigorous honesty. honesty. <laughs> no, you have to have direction, how to communicate with your spouse, how to create this process. It's, 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 it's a very serious process. Honesty and humility are the two foundations of all healing and all recovery. Knowing that you don't know. Knowing that there's so much more to learn, so much more to discover. When I'm lacking either humility or honesty, one of the two or both, I'm back in. I'm back into addiction. So if if we're going to honesty, one of the questions um, brought this up. So about women, and you know, occasionally I'll have women reach out to me about this struggle, and I always find if you talk about shame, right, the level of shame that a man has for stumbling on porn, women have tenfold or a hundredfold. And the numbers aren't low. If you look at, for example, from the viewers of pornography, let's say it's 80, 90% of men watch it several times a week and 40, 50% of women watch it several times a week. So you're not, you know, if if you're dealing with depression and you had numbers of 40, 50%, you'd say, wow, it's an epidemic. But because men are twice as common as women, women are seen as not struggling with this. And when they eventually do come to terms with it or want to address it, it's a, there's a lot of added shame, you know, around it for, for many reasons, societal norms, the guy gets the woman, he is the trophy, the woman's with the guy, she's a slut. So you have those, those ideas as well. So I, I, I feel like maybe addressing some of those things to, to women is, have you had that experience talking to some of those, what's your message to them? Is it different than, than to men? Listen, it's, as you know, as you said, the shame is very, very deep, very, very deep. And from my experience, sometimes the self-loathing that women, I I just had literally (laughs) this week dealing with a woman who's been cheating on her husband for many, many years. And, uh, and she's really very wise, very spiritual, but broken, completely broken. Not a, not an ounce of self-esteem. And the best thing we can do for ourselves and for others is become empathetic witnesses. Peter Levine, the founder of Somatic Therapy, defined trauma. He said, trauma is not what happened to you. Trauma is that which is stuck in your body, lacking an empathetic witness. We have so many things stuck in us and there's no empathetic witness. Either I criticize it, I delegitimize it, I deny it, I repress it, I suppress it. I meet this woman and I want to become an empathetic witness. I want to become a container, like a rechem, a womb. The Maral says the womb in Hebrew is rachem, rechem, which means compassion, rachemim. It's beautiful. What's compassion? Compassion is I don't have solutions for you, but I want to contain. Without judgment, without criticism, without repressing, without denying. And in that process, a lot of healing happens in very, very deep ways. And I think for men and for women especially, that process has to happen. 
You're going to have to acknowledge the pain of your loneliness. This woman was so broken. She grew up in a dysfunctional home. Again, talk about choice, okay? She was abused as a girl for 10 years. She got married to a man who is an ad, who has serious mental illness and cannot connect emotionally. Yes, she went to porn. She went to other men. She's doing things that are very, very destructive. But what I see is not a sinister, malicious woman. I see a woman who doesn't have an ounce of self-love, of self-care. And the first thing I can do is just contain her with all her pain so that she should be able to contain herself and be empathetic to herself and really feel what was taken from her at such a young age and acknowledge it and then realize, back to your thank you letter, Everything I did was a coping mechanism. Those were the only tools I knew I was trying to survive. Women need this as much as men, maybe even more than men, certainly equal to men. And that process is a very, very sensitive and deep process. The moment they can feel the love in your voice and the lack of judgmentalism, they can relax and they can open up. We tighten up when we feel judged. That's why it's so important to be full of empathy to everybody you meet. You know, I have learned in my experience that there's nothing like compassion. There's nothing like just containing the other person. Just be a womb. Literally what a mother does for a fetus. She doesn't judge the fetus. She doesn't fix the fetus. Doesn't tell the fetus how to breathe, how not to breathe, how to grow, how not to grow. Just I'm just going to let you grow within me. And miracles happen. In nine months, you have a full-fledged miracle. It's incredible. Some, and, and, and if we can do that emotionally to people... I think it's it's incredibly powerful. Someone asks here uh, how to deal with lust, and uh, I know there's a twelve step program that speaks a lot. It's not one that I've joined, but there's one. Maybe some some of the people listening. So anyway, that they talk a lot about lust, almost like the addiction to lust. Is this a, is this a thing? Is this a? I have my thoughts on it which i'll address in a moment but uh, so share your thoughts and i'll, I'll share your so, thoughts on this please yeah so every time i hear it i feel like it's a baton to beat someone <laughs> to beat up over the head relentlessly because uh, like i said I'm, I'm in a 12-step program we don't publicly say the name of the program we're in so i won't but it's not one that addresses lust addresses sex addiction i don't know what to make of lust People call me, he's like, I have a lust addiction. I said, I don't know what that means. Does that mean you're human? <laughs> like, what is this lust addiction? I know when I did an action. I know even when I'm obsessing over something, I'm toying with the thought, I'm playing with it. Like, you know, I'm writing the story in my head. I've mapped out all the details. I That's an action. Even though it's a thought, it's, there's an action to that thought. I've, I'm doing much more than, uh, you know, <laughs> a thought that came into my brain. Now I'm, you know, I'm massaging it. I'm wrestling it. I'm, I'm playing with it. But lust itself, like this idea, all I hear is someone that has an endless, um, like an endless whip, a whip that never ends. I lusted, I lusted, I lusted, I lusted, I lusted. And the term drives me crazy. I think it should be uh, banished from any sort of recovery or healing uh, process. That's my personal position on it. I, it, I think it's... I think what you're saying is important. I would just maybe add this, maybe a little bit from a different angle, and say, this is a, there's a beautiful teaching from the Alter Rebbe, from the Balatanya, in Lekutitoyer, Parshish Chukas. It's, it's an amazing teaching about recovery. 
And he says, whenever you're feeling a very powerful temptation or lust, he says, have the courage to strip it from the outer facade and look what it's really about. Very often, the lust that you're feeling, that you're calling lust, is coming from a very, very excited soul. You're on fire. (laughs) And you want (laughs) fire. You don't want to live a life of quiet desperation, as a great poet, poet Thoreau once said. You don't want to live a dull life. You want to live life to the fullest. Carpe diem, seize the day. You are a lustful soul. You want drama. You want excitement. You want animation. You want electricity. You want nuclear energy in your relationship. And I say to you, great. Mazel tov. Mazel tov. Now let's figure out how to channel it in ways that are authentic and real and deep and meaningful. That's what your challenge is. You don't have to get rid of your creativity. You're on fire. So there's a few elements to it. Number one, if, you have, if you're in, in a marriage, in a good marriage, can you build a relationship where you can both trust each other with your fetishes, with your childlike dreams in a way that is respectful to the other person, not in a way that's exploitive and abusive, not in a way, but in a way where you can really become a child with your spouse. You could both be children. That's what a good marriage is like. You don't need to be mature. Mature, you're on your office with your people, right? You're a CEO. You got to be mature with your employees. But when you have a good relationship, that's where the, you know, the childlike parts can come out. That's number one. Number two, can you find that lust in your spirituality? You know, Maimonides, the Rambam, in his Laws of Repentance, describes a love to God, and he compares it to somebody who has a crush on a woman. This is what he writes. 24 hours a day, he thinks about this woman. When he sleeps, when he eats, you know when you have a crush on somebody, you eat and you drink and you sleep and you go to work and you go to exercise and you polish your shoes and you go on the plane, and all you think, he says this, I quote, all you think is about this woman. He says, some people know how to have such a relationship with God. Do you, no. Can you relate to this? So I want to tell you, that if you can find there are parts of Judaism that are highly, highly intoxicating from a spiritual point of view, and if you're a lustful soul, you will find very deep fulfillment in them. Very deep. Some people find it in real prayer. Some people find it in Kabbalah, in Hasidus. Some people find it in, in song, in melody. Some people find it in friendship. Some people find it in becoming ambassadors, leaders, ambassadors of love, of compassion. In their marriages, people find it. Don't, you don't have to destroy any of it. You want to harness it in ways that will actually turn you into an incredibly powerful force. So practically, for the good. what would that look like? What, what, what would it look like? I'll, I, I, I cannot speak I have this to thought I'm toying with yeah, and uh, I, I'm lusting, whatever it means. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about me, myself, okay? I, ha- I happen to have a pretty uh, animated soul. There's lust inside of me. <laughs> <laughs> There's lust inside of me, okay? Now, I, I try to be a responsible person. I try to be an anchored person, which is not contrary to my nature because I'm a little artistic and I sometimes like to fly. So I have to be very responsible and I anchor myself. But for example, I personally have a few things, spiritual pursuits, that I could tell you they put me on a high. They're, for me, they're oxygen. One of those things, for example, is learning uh, the teachings of Chassidus from some of the greatest spiritual masters, like the Baal Shem Tev, the Magid, the Alter Rebbe, uh, the, the leaders of Chabad, and some other great Hasidic masters. 
And I read, I could, I could start crying, I could start singing, I could start dancing. And what I see is I find such deep truths of existence. I'll meditate on it. And it really, it gives me a serenity and a tranquility and a perspective that I will not replace for anything. And it allows me actually to teach lots of people and inspire people. The same is true about certain relationships, whether in a marriage or with other loved ones that are very deep and authentic, and you can allow your lust to come out, again, in ways that are not exploitive. I, for example, I heard, I was a student many years, and I grew up at the feet of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. There was something about his talks for me that expanded my mind and my horizons incredibly in terms of understanding the world and understanding Judaism. Till today, right before our talk tonight, I went on a walk on my street because we have a slope. My street is on a slope, so it's good exercise and I can use a little bit of it. So I was listening to a talk of the Rebbe, Purim 1960, a Yiddish talk for a few hours. And I just have to say, for me, it was like the lustful part of my soul was satiated. There was such spiritual, existential, psychological, scholastic, emotional depth and the integration of all parts of Torah and the application to life and to Jewish life. For me, it gets my heart on fire, my soul on fire. Find what can ignite your soul. Get your soul on fire. You need it. You're, you're, you're not a dead soul. Baruch Hashem. Find it. Find it in your marriage. Find it in your Judaism. Find it with people. And if you do, there are such, not everybody needs it. Some people are more, you know, they're more, they like monotony. Not to mention. Huh? Right, some are colder. I understand. Yeah, you know, there's this tremendous also forms of healing today. So many unbelievable forms of healing. Somatic healing, body healing, uh, uh, various exercises, energy healing, various forms of meditation, breathing, grounding work. There's incredible stuff out there today that are so in tune with Judaism and with spirituality about integrating truth into your body and releasing trauma from your body and realizing... You're saying instead of, instead of fighting the lust, yeah. find a way to express it. That's what the Balatanya says. He says all lust has inside a very powerful spiritual core. Get rid of the outer trappings and you'll see what you're really looking for is something much deeper. And you know what? That's going to be a lust that's going to make you, that's going to make you feel proud of yourself. It's good lust. It's it's becoming crazy about things that you want to be crazy about. It's good to I had have a conversation insanity. with someone. I had a conversation with someone a few days ago where he was explaining to me. He was talking about this topic where he has a lot of uh, thoughts about people other than his wife, and he's realized after working through this and some of it through some of the uh, techniques you just mentioned that it's really his deep care for humanity, and instead of wanting to be with every nationality perhaps he has to help every nationality so you're saying it was an interesting conversation i was listening to him i didn't have much to say i nodded along and did my best to be what was the the a womb to his idea an empathetic witness right to his ideas i saw they were coming from a profound place of realization for him like they came from through some of like i mentioned meditation or other kind of sound healing or other stuff he came to this realization that maybe my sexual drives and urges is really a deep care for humanity and, you know, cross, cross-cultural. I like everyone. I want to help everyone. And he was talking to me about how he's going to, to channel that and that he spoke to his wife about it as well. And 
you know, where that was coming from, how that opened up a conversation. I didn't you know, have there's much also to... today, there's a lot of centers that are using psychedelics to heal trauma. And people suddenly realize that a lot of their addictions and their lust are rooted in a deep spiritual yearning for love, for connection, for relationships. That these, these, mm. these uh, centers are helping them realize it's amazing stuff. It's a time of revelation, of a lot of awareness. And I want to tell you something else. There's a story in the Talmud in Gemara, Tractate Ksuvis, page 17. One of the greatest Talmudic sages, he was a scholar, he would go to weddings and he would dance wildly, wildly. And one of the other sages, Reb Zayda, said, you're embarrassing all of us. You're like a scholar. You're a great rabbi. You're supposed to carry yourself with dignity. And then he says, when he died, the Talmud says, when he died, they saw that there was a pillar of fire following the coffin. And this great sage says, his insanity is what put him on a completely different spiritual plane. It's a very powerful concept. You know, can you go to a wedding and just lose your self-consciousness and dance three hours like a little child that has no ego and no self-consciousness? That's healthy insanity. That's healthy lust. There's an unbelievable story in, in the book of Shmuel, the book of Samuel. King David welcomes back the Aaron, the Ark, David HaMelech. And the, 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 the Tanakh says, The king of Israel, the most powerful person, was whistling and jumping and doing acrobats and gymnastic movements, jumping, leaping, literally, in, in, dancing. And his wife looked out the window and she said, you are an embarrassment. You are a humiliation. And he says, a humiliation? I would do it much more and much deeper. This, I'm dancing before God. That type of ecstasy we need in our lives. You see, we Ashkenazic Jews, I know, I know you don't come for, completely from Ashkenazic <laughs> background, but me, we, many of us Ashkenazic Jews, we decided that all of Judaism is about cerebral experiences. You sit and you learn and you think. And then maybe you become a lawyer, you become an accountant, you become a teacher, you become a rabbi. It's very cerebral and intellectual. And many of us have lost touch with the ecstasy, with the passion, with the viramkeit, with the ability to dance, to sing, to jump, to leap, to hug, to love, to embrace, to give. That's that, that, But we all have souls. But I just want to make sure, you're saying that some of this energy is coming out sideways through yeah. errant sexual yeah. Yeah. fantasies, thoughts, actions, yeah. etc. So yeah. you, touched, you touched on something interesting, which actually is apropos because the the specific um, type of healing the person was doing that made him aware that his sexual drive was uh, wanting to help people was actually psychedelics. And the next conversation that I um, intend to have this format is ketamine clinics are popping up all over and I'm going to have it with a couple of people who are uh, um, in this field from people who are in this field of uh, ketamine healing. What, what are your thoughts on it? What are some of the texts? I, I saw one letter from the Rebbe, for example, on, on uh, LSD. What, as, yeah. my, my expectation is that over the next three to five years, this will go to a therapist and they'll say, okay, you know, ecstasy, I have ecstasy for you. There's MDMA treatment that's licensed and, you know, the studies are... Uh, yeah, a revolutionary. The, yeah, the only thing I would yes. say is, I think sometimes it could be very helpful. I do think it's important that it should be supervised with a professional therapist and doctor for a simple reason, and this is very, very important. These psychedelics cannot become a substitute for daily living. They can only become 
sources of awareness that you then have to work and integrate in your life through your own resources. What happens often, and this is a big stumbling block for people. They are a so, word of caution for those who... Yeah, very important. They're so powerful and such powerful tools of awareness that we just want to live in that space. But you can't live in that space unless you want to become an angel or you want to live in another world or in another planet. So what these psychedelics can do and with the proper with the proper uh, supervision and direction is they can create awareness of what's happening deep inside your subconscious so that now you should know what you have to work on but this is what's called avayda bekayach atzma you really have to learn how to stimulate yourself from within with your own resources with your conscious daily tools that god has given you but I think if it's supervised, if it's, if it's not supervised, I'm also try to be cautious because sometimes it just becomes a procreative form of recreation and leisure. And I think it makes people often less responsible and it detaches them. Well, obviously, them. listen, I mean, if we're, we're discussing this format, you're talking about doing something in a legalized format. The yeah, current legalized, legalized format. But I think it's important to have supervision from professionals who can guide you to utilize it in a way that's actually going to enhance your vision to be able to know what you have to work on. And then comes the real work when you get back home and you have to start integrating it, which is much harder. But that's where the real work happens. So we can, it's, it's very powerful. It's one of the things God embedded into our world for a reason. But I think do not allow that to become a crutch and a substitute for taking responsibility for your life and believing in your ability to be able to use your day-to-day resources to live an extraordinary life. Got it. Are you are you familiar with the um, letter of the Rebbe that I referenced regarding yes. LSD? Yes, yes. Okay, so most of the letter seems to be fairly a negative and against it. How does this jive with what you're saying? No, I mean, there's well, two words there. Yeah, no. Well, I think I think with the Rebbe's letters, you always have to know what was written to him because it was a personal response. And the way right. I understand it, I didn't see the letter that was written to him, but from the spirit of his responses, there was a movement in the United States of people who LSD was literally a lifestyle. Um, uh, Aldous Huxley, <laughs> I think, even wanted it to be put into the water reserve of the New York City <laughs> system <laughs> so that we <laughs> we should wake up. And the Rebbe said, the Rebbe's point was, LSD, it's better to do LSD as in let's start davening. Meaning, it's like sometimes these these drugs can create awakenings. But if it becomes a lifestyle, it often is very counterproductive because people start living uh, vicarious lives through them. And you, you see sometimes, I know people that every night, every night, it's not, just talk about basic weed. A guy told me, he says, my marriage is not good. I come home, I just smoke, <laughs> I smoke weed, and that's how I survive my marriage. The, the challenge here is, you know, his wife looks into his eyes and he's just not there. His children look at him. You know, he's not there. We have to take responsibility for our lives and say, I can deal with my trauma. I do not have to escape. I may want to use these things again in a, in a, in a supervised way, but as a responsible person. So I think that's the distinction between uh, different approaches here. Well, right. I mean, there are some who say, you know, off limits, it's not okay. And the, the, the letter that I wrote that I reference, which says, I mean, what the question seems to have been, should I use it to attain mystical experience, right? So it seemed to be focused on the spirituality. Right, so I think what he meant was an ongoing basis, on an ongoing basis, and I think the Rebbe felt very strongly 
that Judaism is ultimately a system where you really have to be able to find a relationship with God within internally, internally with the tools that you were given as a person. But I, I think, especially when it comes to trauma, and there's so much of it today, if these can be used by professionals to help you become aware of things and release them, just to say that it's all forbidden, I don't think is right. And I don't see the basis for that right. at all, at all. I personally know people that had opened up vistas to subconscious pain that they were never aware of. Well, I've, I've heard that the um, Balchuva movement is in no small part connected to, the, uh, to, to that movement. But listen, the, uh, like I said, ketamine clinics are starting to pop up all over the U.S. And uh, um, apparently a lot of people in addiction say that some of these treatments, Obegain and uh, some others, have been helpful. Cannabis, Obegain, ketamine. Gabor Mate, you, you referenced... Uh, Gabor Mate, his, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you referenced on what he said early, earlier. His, um, he spoke about addiction as ayahuasca is the number one treatment he's seen for, uh, for, for addiction. And I think in Peru he was leading, um, he may even still leading these uh, sort of treatments. But. There's also another incredible breakthrough. I heard this from Bessel van der Kolk, told it to me directly. He said that we have discovered in recent years that very often mental illness is a result of trauma, which is incredible. It was always thought that a human being is a machine, and sometimes your chemicals are off, just like you could break your arm or break your leg, something in you have a mood disorder. He said that could be the case, but we're finding so much of mental illness that can be attributed back to traumatic experiences. So the level of synchronization today between the spiritual and the physical, between the mind, the body, the soul, is incredible. It's just incredible. And we're leading, history is taking us to a place of, of, of very deep enlightened consciousness where we're going to discover the oneness of the universe, the oneness of humanity, the oneness with inside ourselves, you know, there's a line in Tanya that always, it's, it still moves me, that Al-Tarebbe should write this in the 1700s, you know, before they even knew that there was something called bacteria, fungus, viruses, uh, electrons, uh, neutrons, what a cell looks like, you know, no, nobody knew about these things. And he says, and I quote, he says, if we had microscopic eyes, if our eyes had those enhanced uh, uh, sensors, uh, uh, detect the uh, sensors to detect reality, when we would look at matter, we would see the the spiritual energy that's flowing through everything in matter, and we would see that the whole world is divine energy. Such a beautiful description, which is literally cutting edge physics and science today. You know, the levels of spirituality that science speak about in terms of physics and quantum mechanics and, and that all of matter is really made up of energy and consciousness. I mean, it's incredible stuff. So I think it begins within ourselves. You know, when you look at yourself as an addict, we, we have to identify how spiritual we are, how, how deep we are, how divine we are, which means how, how beautiful, how gorgeous, how powerful, how infinite we are. And and if I cannot embrace my infinity, addiction is the way to go for me because addiction literally is my escape from the pain of the emptiness that comes from not knowing my strength and wanting to run away from my self-consciousness. In that sense, we're all addicts because self-consciousness is that innate plague of humanity that's based on detachment. I come to a wedding, I come to a bar mitzvah, I come to a restaurant, I come to your house, and instead of feeling one, I'm busy 
becoming my own narrator. Does he like me? Does he not like me? Am I impressive? Am I not impressive? Should I dance? Should I not dance? Do I belong here? Do I not belong here? What should I say now? And, and we're, we all suffer from this. Like, can you just get me out of my mind? Can you get me out right. of my self-consciousness? Can you let me live? Can you let me become one <laughs> with life? Addicts are just people who feel it more than the others. They feel it more, and therefore their escapes are are much more dramatic. So much, I think much of Judaism is an exercise in, in trying to experience this oneness. And when we experience this oneness, so then we need much less, uh, we need less those that pornography or other stuff to be able to give us those thrillers and those highs that we need because the void is so profound. I heard someone say an addict is like everyone else, only more so. But one thing interesting, I mean, when I first entered therapy, I found that uh, there is a major lack in most therapies not the stuff you're talking about, right? The trauma therapy and the spiritual therapy and the psychedelic therapy and the sound healing and meditation and all of those, that jives very well with Judaism. But in the the, the traditional therapists, the Western modality is almost to strip away God from the conversation. We talk about Viktor Frankl like we respect him, but we couldn't give a damn about what he says because anything that from the therapeutic model, we just don't deal with it. It's There's an issue. How do I fix it? So we'll talk about it a little bit, but they'll never really go to the the more spiritual sides of it. Your brother and I did a whole, whole conversation on this. And I think that as um, more of these become mainstream, more of this type of healing, the body, mind, spirit, there's going to be a need for uh, a lot of rab- rabbis and spiritual leaders to enter the healing space. Yeah, yeah. Talk, we, we can have we these all, conversations. We all need to expand our consciousness. We have to realize that a lot of our Judaism has been very ritualistic. You right. know, very you know, do the right thing, which is wonderful. There's red lights, there's green lights, there's halacha, you do this, you don't do this, which has been the foundation of Jewish life over the generations. But in order to really sustain it, there is so much deep spirituality and deep psychological awareness out there that for Judaism, not just to compete with it, but to remain the shining light for humanity, we need to expand our consciousness to a Judaism that is that is fully in sync with the deepest truths of psychology, science, physics, spirituality. And and some of our spiritual traditions have given us that gift, but many of us are simply unaware of it. Or even if we're aware of it, we're not aware of it viscerally. You know, our education is very, it's very, it's here, it's in the mind. Like, nobody ever taught us about the body. It wasn't part of... Uh... Right, so what you're saying to come full circle is it's kind of being woken up by the addict, by the unhealed, by the mentally ill. It's, that's what's forcing it to wake up and say, okay, how do I heal? And, 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 once... and by the children who are leaving Judaism in droves. Yeah, all these, and, 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 and those among us who are suffering, and they're helping us say, wow, 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 wow. Where did we go wrong? What did we not give these kids? What are they looking for? What are they searching for? It's not an easy question to answer. That's why we love blaming other people because then we don't have to look into ourselves. <laughs> but really, I have to look into myself. Is maybe my Judaism a little dysfunctional? Is maybe part of our Judaism trauma-driven? Is part of our Judaism anger-driven? Is part of our Judaism driven by just our own inadequacies? We want our kids to give us nachas so that we could feel good about ourselves. You know, if all my kids remain religious and I can marry them off... 
and then I could look at the family picture and I could say, wow, I am a success story. I have defeated Hitler. I have defeated <laughs> Stalin. I have defeated Pharaoh Haman of Uchanetz, which is wonderful. It's, it's amazing and it's beautiful and it's inspiring. But sometimes we have to go much deeper and say, you know, did I really work out all my own crap? Did I really <laughs> work you out? You see what I thought a lot like what I was being taught was a mechanism to control God, right? If I do this, he'll do that. If I do this and recovery, that's one of the things that shifted where I'm stepping out of that paradigm and that mechanism saying, no, I'm embracing everything. You know, I'm living life on life's terms, right? To, to, to borrow a recovery term, which some of what I felt like in yeshiva was, okay, what are the tools? If I do X, Y, and Z, then I control God to give me ABC. And if I don't, then, okay, it's going to go the other way. So it's this whole mechanism to control God. A theory that I've been playing with, which dovetails well with, uh, this is based on stories, not scientific or anything else. I just, I like listening to people's stories. And sometimes some of the feelings that connects with different addictions. So I'll share it for, for what it's worth. So I found that very often people who consume alcohol a lot have a very, very um, high self-consciousness. They're very conscious of self, and somehow the al- the alcohol allows them to kind of melt into the room. They're not so they're not feeling their uh, every cell of their being like you know like you feel a, sh- a brand new pair of shoes you put on and wondering what everyone thinks about it. You know, or sometimes you walk into a meeting and it's like you feel your hands clammy and everything else. And an alcoholic often feels like that 110 percent of the time until they take alcohol, and then it's like, oh, I'm not so conscious of self. So what a beautiful thing, right? They're trying to do something to be less self-conscious. For uh, drug addicts, almost uniformly, they're looking to be like Nadav and Aviyu, just stuck, stuck in outer space. They want to be connected to Hashem at all times. And part of, I, I think it may have been that event we were at together at the recovery center. There was a Chassid Shekher who shared a poem. He had a heroin addiction. And there was a beautiful refrain in it. I'm going to mess it up, but it was something along the lines of, God, when I put that needle in my arm, I was aiming for you. I missed my mark. And it's almost uniformly wow. amongst drug addicts that I've, heard, that I've heard this, like the feeling behind it is wanting to be connected to God and that the drug allows them to just suspend themselves in that space. And then they want to go back again and feel the spirituality and feel the connection and not feel the harshness of the world. Gamblers are usually gambling for hope. They've lost all hope. So. This is, again, a story. But the sex addict, which is what we're talking about here, 100% of the time that I've worked with an addict, there's a deep, and myself included, there's a deep and existential loneliness. This is feeling, and the more people we're around, and the more people we, you know, we surround ourselves with, and sometimes the closer we get to people, the more at the end of the night, there's this feeling of, I'm going home alone. And that loneliness becomes so painful, and the only thing to anesthetize is this, Fake connection that we can... Um, fake fake connection, that's the key. Porn is a fake connection. It's a fake connection. It's a glass connection. And the same is true it's with... It's like when you have uh, four... You know, there was a girl who committed suicide and the mother was at the funeral. There were a few people. She said, I don't understand. She had 2,000 friends on Facebook. Where are they? 2,000 likes on Facebook. Right. Where are they? Why are they not at the funeral? Yeah. yeah. The and fake have- connection... And yeah. and the spiritual person feels the fakeness. So tomorrow he needs more porn. He Correct. needs more intense porn to compensate for the void of yesterday's porn, which left me feel 
empty and stupid and, 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 and deceptive. So tomorrow I need a double portion. But the, the irony is why this is so important specifically for this addiction. Because in that what happens with sex addiction is we all end up in an island, right? People don't say, okay, let's all get together and watch pornography. Even you go to a strip club, right, where it's more public, they say, okay, give me a private room in the strip club, okay, for those attended. It's not a public, it's not, I'm not going to a bar and drinking with 10 people saying, oh, I don't feel self-conscious anymore, let me be around people. It's a very isolating addiction. It's one, one of the times I knew that I had a real problem with addiction is I had a business meeting at a strip club. And after the meeting ended, I drove my car with everyone else. I made a U-turn and I came back because what I wanted to be there for, I couldn't be around anyone else. And it occurred to me at the end of that night when I was leaving the strip club, whatever it was at three, four in the morning, that, hey, I was the only one who turned back. So, wow. Well, right. So maybe, maybe there's something that's on a little bit more of, uh, of an extreme than some of the others. Wow. But that loneliness, right, if we're talking about a lot of what your message here tonight was, is to don't fight it. Don't hate it. Like, look at it. What is it? Yeah, I don't want to be lonely. I don't want to be lonely. Be lonely. So, and, that's a, and that's a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. Embrace that. And the, the addiction, you know, there's a beautiful, beautiful word from the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya. He says that the Maimonides, when he speaks about Abraham, Avram, he says he was steeped in idolatry like his father and his city. He says, why, why, why does he want to defame him? He was steeped in idolatry. And he says, because that's why he discovered God. He was looking for something. If he wasn't steeped in idolatry, he would have never discovered God. Exactly. He he was just there to make money, you know. He was looking for something. Your pornography, say thank you. You were looking for a real connection. You're an innocent boy. You actually want love and you couldn't find love for whatever reason. It's probably not your fault. So porn became fake love. What this fake news and this fake love. It's called porn, fake love. This, this, it's funny you mentioned that because this conversation, when it gets recorded on my side, I'm sure it'll end up on your platform. I'll throw it up onto the, uh, the podcast I have, which I call In Search of More. So that's yeah. where I was. I was yeah. in search. Yeah, yeah. There's, in there's search an addiction, addiction therapist who once told me, he's very successful here in Muncie, very compassionate person. And he once told me, he says, he says, I often tell addicts, he says, you know, imagine, he says, I'm watching a movie and I see the face of a person and the person is sweating and, his face displays anguish and he's full of blood. And all I'll say about this person is he's sick. Call the doctor. He's very ill. But then as, as the, as the, as the camera zooms out and I see the full perspective, suddenly I see the person may be climbing. And then when we zoom out further, I see that he's actually climbing Mount Everest and he almost (laughs) reached the top. And suddenly the person who I thought a moment ago was just sick is actually <laughs> very strong, very healthy, very athletic. He's just he's just achieved incredible success and he almost reached the top. And he says, right. I tell this to addicts, you know, you look in the mirror and you say, I'm bleeding, I'm in anguish, I'm struggling, I fell down again, I tripped again, I'm a sick person. Do you realize that God put Mount Everest in your life and you're in the middle of climbing it? Can you give yourself credit? There's a combat. There's a war. Yes, war claims casualties. If you ever watched the soldiers in Normandy, even those who survived, it was brutal. The pain, the sweat, the trauma. But give yourself credit. You're in a war. 
You're in a combat zone. Right. And this yeah. goes even for people who didn't experience yeah. molestation. Yes, 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 yes. Because yes. it's very deep. I haven't met anyone. Deep. I haven't met one person, not one person with a severe addiction who doesn't have a story to tell. And oftentimes, you know, earlier you're talking about like sexual abuse and even viewing pornography. So when I tell people, I said sexual abuse is not a good term. Because it's too ambiguous. What does it mean? Do I have to? Does a rape have to be involved? Does it have to be a monster at the other end of the line? What if it's like me? It was a teenager. So does it make a difference? So I say it has nothing to do with sexual abuse. It's was your sexuality abused, and that you could have walked into a exactly. room at five years old, exactly. where somehow I don't know, lightning hit a computer and it turned on pornography. There's no bad man to point the finger at, but at five years old. You witnessed something that the brain wasn't able to comprehend. And, and Ellie, and Ellie Corona effect. started, and all of our kids went on to Zoom for a year or two years, besides the Hasidim and Munsi. <laughs> <laughs> they were smart. They kept their schools open, but that's a separate subject. Everybody was on Zoom. None of the parents knew what hit them. We never heard of Zoom. right? How many teenagers write to me? How many of them became addicts? Yeah. They're on Zoom a whole day, from 8 in the morning till 7 at night, without social life for a whole year, two years. We have to, we have to appreciate the battles that people are having. And, and every addict out there, yes, I'm a soldier, I made mistakes, I stumbled, but you're in a war zone, and give yourself credit for every, okay. every enemy you take down. If you think about what I mentioned earlier about loneliness being always connected to sex addiction, in my experience and the people I've spoken to, if you can get to that feeling underneath everything, is that deep loneliness? Imagine what Corona did to right. right. To I don't so know if you uh, you don't. If it's a very interesting thing. If somebody asks from a Jewish perspective, what's the worst thing in the world? People might tell you idol worship or uh, or uh, or adultery. You know all these types of things. But if you look in the Torah, in Bereshus, Genesis, what's the first thing the Torah says is not good? It says Hashem looked at creation every day and it was good. He saw it was good. But then comes the scene where God says, Loitoiv, it's not good. What's not good? What? The first thing that the Torah says is not good is Loitoiv heyois ha'adam levadai. It's not good for a human being to be alone. Somehow, loneliness is the first thing that the Torah defines as not good. Because today we see that it's the foundation of much of our dysfunction. And all trauma is a form of being alone. I'm alone in the world. I'm, I can't trust. I can't love. I'm not worthy of being loved. I'm really alone. And when I'm alone, I need to find something to fill me up with that, with that fake sense of, of connection. Right. And th- this is what has been so profound about my own process of speaking about this publicly, which doesn't, didn't come easy. First of all, I had a crazy fear of public speaking. I was shy. I, whatever. There are many things. And then specifically about this topic, I had a lot of fears. I remember the day I saw my, um, the, the talk get published, the TED talk get published. They didn't send me a message, right? I did the talk, let's say in April. And one day I'm in the office. It's, I don't know, three months later, I'm like, hey, did they ever publish this talk? I never got an email. So I Googled my name, and the first thing that comes up is the TED Talk. It had just been published two or three days before. And I remember this sinking feeling and saying, like, oh, my goodness, what did I do? Like, I have no control over this. This thing is published now. My son at the time was a year old, let's say, I think a year old. So by the time this kid's in grade school, he's going to be tormented over this video. Wow. That his father did. 
It's like a p- porn addict. The very first thing you put my name in, you see escaping porn addiction. Are and, you now fully comfortable or you still uh, have palpitations? No, now I'm fully comfortable. And that's, that, that's the other side of the story. One, I said, okay, so I have a mission. My mission is that by the time he's an adult, not adult, by the time he's in grade school, that the, you know, the age that they may pick on him for something like this. And now my other kids who are also growing up, you know, a year or two younger than him, that porn is viewed, porn addiction is viewed the same way alcohol addiction is. So thank you for the opportunity to spread this to more people. But the other is no, when you get messages from people and I get messages every single day, every time I sign onto Facebook, Instagram, my email, I have a message from someone else that they saw my talk and how it impacted them. But, but it's just in this conversation as I'm talking that I'm realizing why it's so healing is because it heals that loneliness. You don't feel alone. When you have a struggle and someone else shares that struggle, Yeah, it may be the most important program of all. Yeah. Because yeah. the alcoholic has friends. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's an, I shouldn't say that. Right? The, the, the Kiddush Club. The Kiddush Club. Right. There's something. What does Billy the, Joel say? Sharing the cup of loneliness, but it's better right. than drinking alone. <laughs> so not that it's an easy addiction. Not that it's an easy addiction. It's not. But there's something about right. um, sex addiction, which, yeah, I'm encouraging. For those listening, reach out to people. You'd be surprised how many, how many people struggle with it. I sat, I was in, I was, spoke for a yeshiva in Florida a few weeks ago. They were between the ages of 14 and 17. So before I started speaking, I turned to the, I said, can I speak openly? He said, go ahead. You're not teaching anyone anything. And it's true. You speak a room. 14, 15, say at the end, one kid came over to me, he struggles, he's gay. Another person thinks he's a woman. Another person, um, another couple of people were abused. And I could have spent all night talking to each person, the individual story. I didn't have one person look at me like I had four heads when I spoke about pornography. Maybe they felt that way. But by and large, for people who you are You know what, Ellie, these are the conversations that everybody is, most people are craving for today. We're fed up with the cerebral conversations that are just detached from reality and are completely irrelevant. People are just so fed up. I don't know if you sit, if you still sit at sermons or classes. You probably don't anymore. You probably checked out from that quite a few years ago. But you know, you see how people are just rolling their eyes and it's like, okay, you know, bring it on again. And suddenly when the teacher or the rabbi or the rebbitzin or the therapist or the friend, you know, gets up and just speaks from their heart, they're vulnerable. Like, everybody just comes to life. It's like, you know, the old model of communicating in an irrelevant way (laughs) from the brain is just, you're not talking to anybody. You lost everybody. And the challenge is the teenagers, because when I spoke last night to a group, two nights ago to a group of 150 female teenagers, girls from Florida, 150 from a high school, they came, I gave them a class, and then we did questions. And I'm looking at them, and I spoke honestly, uninhibitedly, to the dismay of some people in the room, because they were asking very real questions. Not to the kids. Not no. to the dismay of the kids. No, no. no for sure not. And, and you could see the fire in their eyes. Literally, you see they're like, wow, 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 wow. We could be real. We could be honest. We could be authentic. We're allowed to talk about struggle. We're allowed to talk about <laughs> We're allowed to talk about the fact that we have some serious challenges. We have mental anguish. We have anxiety. We have wounds. We have issues, internal, external. It's so important today. It's, it's, it's like, it's a lifeline for people. The, the, the dishonesty, even if it's not malicious, it's just a disconnect where everything is intellectual. And it's like, you know, reading, 
what somebody once told me, he said, my education in the Orthodox world, he said, it's like reading textbooks on cooking without ever cooking. You know, put in six eggs and then put in baking soda. But Rashi asks, what if you don't have baking soda? So then Toysva says, I'll find you something else instead of the baking soda. And he says, I want to taste the food. Stop telling me how to cook. Give me the food. Give me the food. Give me the experience. I need to feel it in my bones. I can't tell you how important this is today. Right. All this text has to be made practical. Abraham Tversky, visceral, visceral, yeah. Someone came to Abraham Tversky and said, how can you send people to church basements to go to uh, AA meetings and the like? You have Musser, Tanya, you have all these holy books from holy rabbis. He said, no problem. Find me a room full of people who read those books like their life depends on it, and I'll send them there. <laughs> but in the meantime, all I got is the 12 steps to send Somebody people Somebody asks here, Ellie. Somebody says, I have been telling myself in porn addiction, it's not such a big deal. I have a good wife, I have a good marriage, I'm a good father, I make some money, I have nice kids. I do porn on the side to entertain myself. Do you really think it's a big deal? Listen, like I said, I never take on those arguments. I never take on those arguments. Why, why for you? Why, no, why was it a big deal for you? Why, why was it a big deal for me? It took over my life. It took over your life. It took over my life and consumed everything. What I will say is that since I stopped... There are many benefits. Actually, let me say this story. I wasn't sure if I should say this story, but it happened this week. I'll say it. So several weeks ago, a guy reaches out to me that his wife was abused. And he's struggling with different things. It's clear he's angry. He wants to go after the abuser and everything else. Okay, So I have some of that conversation with him because, you know, it wasn't too long ago that I was, uh, you know, speaking at JCW events and the like. And we had some of that conversation about confronting the abuser. But as he spoke to me more about, I, I said, really, the abuser is less important than your wife. You're not trying to, you've made it known already in the family. You've made it known to his wife. If there's anyone else you have to protect, you've done that job. Like maybe turn your attention to your wife or her own healing Like to sit there and get this guy for the rest of their life. I've, I, I have yet to meet someone who was um, abused not in some context. Yeah, you hear stories, someone jogging in a park and was randomly abused. I was abused in context. Okay, the context of my abuse was that I was an eight-year-old kid who didn't feel love, who didn't was desperately seeking attention, validation, comfort, and everything else. Not to blame anyone specifically. Maybe I was ultra sensitive. Maybe I was one of nine kids. Maybe I was both. Who knows? But the fact of the matter is that it happened in, the, in a context. And then this person groomed me. He saw that. He saw the opening and he, he took advantage of that. So we can go and turn everyone into monsters and it's a fun game to play. And, you, and some, some heads do have to roll and have rolled rightfully. And there are some monsters out there, but by and large, we're much better off paying attention to ourselves and our own healing and what needs to happen. And who was I the day before the abuse? Because I promised the, all the abuse did for me was bring attention to the issue that needed attention. Thank God I was abused because had I not been abused, I would have wondered till I was 75 what the hell was wrong with me. But because I was abused, I can walk into a therapist and say I had an issue. But my abuse was there the day before also. I was a lonely, depressed, anxious uh, child who didn't feel love and didn't feel had no self-esteem and everything else. And there are many like them who weren't abused. And I happen to be, and I'll say it, luckily, I was abused. 
because it got my attention. If I just may, attention. if I just may interrupt you and say that you're a source of inspiration, and I want to just thank you as a brother to a brother, as a soul to a soul, for having the courage to use your own pain and story and turning it into a source of leadership and being an ambassador of truth and healing for so many people. Thank you. You could have gone in a different direction. <laughs> we did for a little researching. You could have researching. easily gone in a different direction. And I think, you know, you set an example for so many others. And all of us, every, every one of us is an addict in our own way. Everybody has our right. own deep dra- uh, dramas and skeletons and insecurities. I can either hide them and, you know, dig, dig in deeper into my shame and isolation. Or I could find a community. I could find yeah. people who will be there for me and I will be there for them. And we realize that, uh, that we're, we're all broken and we're all trying to heal together and we all need to learn from each other and vulnerability. vulnerability That's what people are key. leaving in droves. People are leaving in droves a community where they don't feel. Yeah, the la- there's no vulnerability. Mm-hmm. You know, judgmentalism is just, it's so, it's, it's so not, for, it's so out of style. <laughs> you know, it's like, get a life. Like, like you know, you, you're so clueless, you know? But yeah. I, I would also, also say when somebody says if it's a big deal or not a big deal. I Actually, just... I wanted to finish this story. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So this woman finally calls me this week. I spoke to her husband several weeks ago and she said, my husband gave me your number previously, but I figured I would talk to you. And the issue essentially was that because of the abuse, she was unable to be with her husband in any way. And he was, he was upset about it. He was blaming it on the abuser and putting it towards him. And I guess the message that I gave to her is the message that I gave to it was that a gift to this person who's watching porn. I said, obviously, because she was abused, she's incapable of being intimate with her husband. But because she was abused, she has no idea what she's missing out on anyway. So she sits there and she says, the only reason she's even paying attention to this, she doesn't have an issue, right? She's, she's not the fat person. She's a skinny person. I don't have a food problem. Everyone thinks I'm beautiful, right? Everyone thinks she's a saint. She doesn't even need sex, right? And it's, so what I said to her is, listen, I said, we both went through the same experience. Our sexuality was abused. I went one way, hypersexuality. You went the other way, hyposexuality. I said, but the journey of recovering from it has not been not watching porn. The, the journey has actually been finding the beauty of sexuality with my wife and recreate and reconnecting to a healthy sexuality. So I'm as distant from it as you are. I obviously mine was in a much more you know, there were risks of disease and there were risks of arrest and there were all sorts of other components. And I was hurting, I was hurting people in other ways. So it's kind of the same thing I would tell this person who's struggling with, who's watching porn, they're okay with it. Okay, do whatever you want. God bless you. It's not, it's not eating your life, but you don't know what you're missing out on. And what certainly you're not getting is that deep level of connection and sexuality the the, right. the brilliance of sexuality, the gift of sexuality. Right. And that's what I'd really say in the last two or three years, I feel like I'm, that's the journey I'm on now is how do I reconnect to, to that? Beautiful. Intimacy is into me see. And uh, yeah, the shame and the guilt of your porn, whoever's asking this question, it certainly affects also other relationships and it affects your work. It affects your friendships. It affects your relationship with your parents, your siblings, your children, because at the core it's really defining the way you react to the world. There's a part of you that is fake. There's a part of you that is living in trauma. And uh, healing will, will just enhance your life significantly, even if you don't feel your life is being destroyed now. 
Right. And this is where the addict sometimes has a benefit. The addict sometimes has a benefit. Right. What's step one? Step one is shattering denial. Right. So sometimes the problem needs to be big enough for denial to be shattered. And I think that's what's going on in the communities also, is the problems are coming to the surface that it's very hard not to ignore the... Uh, right. Somebody says, um, he says, I am a raging sex addict. It's all I think about from morning to night. I have no other life. This is what I dream about. This is what I do constantly. It's like I'm completely overtaken. Where do I even begin the journey of healing? Wow. If, if someone's a raging sex addict, if they're at that place and they're identifying as such, then uh, raise your hand and say, I'm a sex addict and go to some of those meetings. Right. I think it's, uh, and and you know? I, I think so, yes. And I would also just suggest, you know, ultimately our victories come when we can identify deep down in ourselves. Do we have anything that we still feel is worth fighting for? Do you have values do you have priorities? Is there something you love? Is there something you cherish? Is there anything that's meaningful to you in your life? Can you start building that? Can you start getting involved in that? Is there anything that turns you on? Is there anything that excites you? Because the ultimate substitute for addiction is connection. You need to be connected to something. So ask yourself, is there still anything or everything is dead? Maybe everything has died inside of you. And then we need very serious you know, form of shock treatment. Right. But maybe not. Maybe you'll look in and you'll find this. there's something still alive inside of you. There's some passion. There's some love. There's some fire. What, what do you care for? Do you care for your kids? Do you care what, for what, relationships? What that message reminded me of is kind of like the, the last feeling I had before I came to meetings yeah. was I stopped going to these places or doing any of these things because I wanted to do it. I, I was doing it in order to get a reprieve from thinking about it. Wrong. My mind was, it was just constant. And I saw, okay, if I did it, like, you know, it's then go do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. So it's okay, I'll do it. You leave me alone for 20 minutes. It used to be two hours. Then it became 20 minutes. Then it became five minutes. But eventually what I will say is there's a different way and it changes. The Gemara said, I've learned to understand it. Well, I learned it when I was a kid and I remember, I remembered it for a while. There's a limb when you feed it. When you feed it, it's hungry. When you starve it, it's full. So, when you starve it, it's full. Yeah, must be a rav, my rivoy must be a yeah. There is yeah, so somebody, a way out. There's a way out of the mess. Some, but there's a way out of the mess. A lot of accountability, a lot of honesty, authenticity, integrity, and slowly finding the voice inside of you that's there. It's still there. You're not completely dead because if you would be, you wouldn't ask this question. <laughs> The obsession is distracting us from something, and I'll, I'll, I'll say I'll say a story for example. Now, I was on a, uh, I was on about forty five days sober, early recovery, and I got on a phone call, and during the phone call, someone said something that upset me, and quite literally, I put the phone on speaker and started searching for pornography. Wow! But now, you know, one of the things that changes in recovery is you don't just get on the train; you watch yourself get on the train. <laughs> so now I'm watching myself get on the train. I'm like, whoa, what just happened? I was on a f- call for 20 minutes. I was fine. I was, you know, why am I on pornography suddenly? And then I went on the conversation. I said, you know what? The person upset me and I didn't express my, my discomfort. So I expressed it. And as I described, as, as I expressed it, the urge went away. Unbelievable. Yeah. So it's understanding what's beneath this. So those words that you said are critical words, I think, for all of us. Don't just get on the train. Watch yourself getting on the train. 
And that's the key to all healing. Recovery is all about awareness. Correct. In other words, I'm still being triggered. I still want to go to do porn, but I'm watching it. I see it. <laughs> there is an eye that transcends the addiction and the eye watches and sees what's happening in my brain. And I'm like, wow, wow, I am in this position. Mm-hmm. I am really vulnerable. And right, then you can see, you can see the feelings. Right, you watch that, it happen. You watch that start it start preceding it. And, yeah. and, and suddenly you also, there's a separation between your eye and those feelings. You're Correct. not your thoughts. And then you realize it's not me. It's inside of me. It's part of me, but it's not me. There's actually Correct. A, a, a me that is that could contain it, that can be a womb that could contain it. Somebody writes here, he says, everything you said about lust is completely irrelevant to me. I am an addict with lust. I'm always erratic. I speak inappropriately constantly. I'm always turning my head to find somebody else to be with. I'm just completely, completely consumed by the lust of sexuality. And this is my life. And when you start talking about harnessing lust, it's absolutely ludicrous. Very good point. Very good point. And and I, I stand corrected here because I, I, I went ahead of myself. We have to state the obvious. Before you harness your lust, you first have to have boundaries. If you have no discipline... Harnessing lust is very dangerous. We have to have the courage to say, yes, there's certain expressions of lust that I'm not going to because you won't even discover any other form of lust as long as you're surrendering to this type of lust. So you're right. It begins with with real boundaries, with real lust. Somebody asks, with real boundaries to fight the lust, and then you could think about finding the depth of it and harnessing it in different ways. You're right. Ellie, somebody asks a very interesting question. He says, I, I am sometimes addicted. <laughs> I get overwhelmed by sexuality. Sometimes it takes me over. Sometimes it doesn't take me over. What should I do on a day-to-day basis to live a healthier life? Be practical with me. What would you answer to that? It's a very I'd good like question. See, I'd like to see the, uh, the words over here. So am I towards the top, towards the bottom? Where do you see it, though? It's by me here. It's not on the question and answer? No. Oh, I could, I could text it to you. Yeah, yeah. I want, I want to see the words just so I, uh, I answer the question. Exactly. You're sending it to me here on the... I'll send let me, let me Let me give my answer, then I'm going to send it to you because I want to hear yeah. your answer. It's, it's, I think it's a wonderful question because it's really, I think it really affects all of us. And I would just say one dimension to it. I would love to hear what you know others say as well. But I think it's so important to really take responsibility for your schedule and be anchored in a lifestyle that keeps you out of the mess as often as possible. Which means, ask yourself, what are the hours in the day that you go to porn? What are the triggers that cause you to go to porn? Ellie just said he had that conversation and somebody said something hurtful and he didn't respond. He didn't defend himself. And it actually enforced his sense of uh, low self-esteem and he went to porn. Ask yourself, is it 10 o'clock at night? Is it in the office? Is it when you get into an argument with your wife? Is it when your children make uh, give you a headache? Is what What is it? Is it Shabbos? Is it holy days maybe? I know people, the worst days for them are Jewish holidays because the expectations of spirituality are so deep and nothing happens and they go straight into porn addiction. 
So figure out the moments when you're triggered most and then create a schedule that allows you to avoid those obstacles. Because once you're in the hole, it's very hard to crawl out. But if you can avoid the hole, then you could live a much better life. So imagine, wake up in the morning at an early hour. Do things that make you a strong person. A good davening, learning, exercise, meditation, yoga, Pilates, jogging, swimming, massages, hiking, journaling, dancing, whatever it is. But live a life that's anchored in your neshama, in your serenity, in your strength, in your power, in your God. And live that schedule and be disciplined about it. Don't just hang out at a wedding or at a samsimcha till 2 o'clock in the morning and you wake up late and then you're bored and you're lonely and you feel bad about yourself. You know, I don't know about your financial situation. But really be responsible for your schedule. Create a schedule that is all about nurturing your inner and outer self, being productive, being an ambassador of truth, of love, of light, of hope, and eliminate all those circumstances that really bring you down into the abyss Make schedules, make chavrusas, whatever community you're in, but find a way to create a schedule that is full of life and vitality and meaning and inspiration, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. Maybe it means taking every day a walk with your wife. Maybe it means going every day on a hike for an hour. I don't know where you live. Maybe it means going to a gym, getting a personal trainer, doing things, challenging yourself, getting involved in some charitable projects, But I would say really take responsibility for your schedule 24 hours a day. Know when you're waking up, when you're going to sleep, what's happening in between, and be very disciplined about it and make sure that schedule is filled to capacity with things that build you and build the people around you. That I think is the beginning of creating a life where you look at yourself and you feel like you're a mensch, you're a mensch, you're... You're, you're sucking the marrow out of life. A day is a day. A day is not just a wasted, uh, a wasted entity. It's, it's a real day. I mean, that's, those are some basic thoughts that I would, uh, suggest. If you text me that, I'll address, but I'll, I'll spend yeah, a few me, minutes on, um, yeah. let me just, yeah. You know, people wanting to stop the addiction and what's, you know, what, what I've seen work for myself. So I do have a much longer conversation that I've done. It's both on YouTube and, on podcast form, I call it, uh, I think, escaping porn addiction. It was maybe three or four hours. And what I, what I, um, what I go through there is what I use myself, which kind of was a three-pronged approach to um, overcoming the, you know, freeing myself from porn addiction. One is a technology component. The second is support groups. And the third is kind of the, the deep inner healing. Call it a therapist or yeah, the, the therapies. Technology is important because if it's too accessible and too quick, it's just it's we're we're going to go there. I don't have any locks on my phone today, but for about two years I needed it just because my the wiring was so. Every time I saw Google, the words went in. Every time I you know I had to get I had to like get my fingers accustomed not to working faster than my brain. So without putting those protections in place, or a number of different programs, Covenant Eyes is a pretty good one. Um, I like it because it's uh, it creates a conversation, a connection. It doesn't just block it that you can get around. It's if there's any searches, someone's notified. If they ha- haven't seen you on the phone for a day, which may suggest that you're using something else, they get notified. There's screenshots that are taken that are blurred out. They get notified, and then it facilitates the conversations. 
guard your eyes. Someone mentioned has a much more uh, wholesome approach to, uh, to to the whole um, to the whole the idea. It's the third to the last. Ellie, it's the fourth to the last chat. Just uh, the fourth to the last chat. Or and maybe the question the and answer. No chat. Okay. I think it's the fourth or the fifth to the last. How to create a schedule to avoid porn. Oh, I'm sometimes okay. an addict. It's basically. I like the okay. question because it's you know getting into a good good. The best is always the preemptive medicine. You know, a hundred percent. So the the technology part I addressed, which is just it's not the solution. I know a lot of people who run after technology tools, thinking I'm going to find the perfect tool. It reminds me of this. Uh, I used to have this box at home. It's called the K Safe, and I used it sometimes to throw my phone in. If at dinner, if your friends are over. Put your phone in and you put a lock on the box. And it's a little piece of plastic and it has a timer. It can be for 30 minutes. It can be for an hour. So when I bought it, I was looking at reviews and one person writes, this thing's a piece of junk. You can break it with a hammer. Okay. So it's not the idea. The idea wasn't to create a vault for your phone. The, create, the idea was to create a barrier between you and your phone. Or in this case, the idea is to create a barrier between you and pornography. So technology is not going to save you. Having the perfect tools because you, you always go to Best Buy and buy another one. You can always borrow something, you can figure out how to get around any lock. The idea is that when the thought comes, your fingers don't work faster than your brain. That's all. So you have momentary pause before you get on the train. Because once you're on, you're on. And then the next day you're picking it up. It's very difficult once you've crossed a certain point. And one of the um, understandings of the 12 steps is that there's an allergic reaction to the drug itself. So unlike other therapies at the time in the 1930s when the 12 steps started, which was, okay, let's try to moderate. If a guy needs alcohol so badly, why am I going to take everything away? Let's try to teach him how to have a beer a night and he can function. And AA said, no, this isn't the way. There's an allergic reaction. The mind, the body, the spirit, everything derails once there's an ounce of um, alcohol that touches a person's lips, this person's lips. And they go, I mean, you read the, you read the literature, they go insane. When they touch the alcohol, they, their mind goes insane. So it's kind of the same thing. Once I see the first picture, my mind's insane. Something shifts inside me. And I've seen it happen to me. I was in a restaurant once. I walked into the bathroom to use a urinal. And there was pornography on the, uh, um, in, the, uh, in the bathroom stall. It was like a French place. And I don't know, pornography is kind of viewed. And it altered the next few days for me. I didn't intentionally see it, but I kind of was stuck standing there. It was right in front of me. I re- I noticed it until I was already using the urinal. And for the next 20 seconds, I'm sitting there looking at something. And my brain chemistry was different wow. for the next two days. I didn't choose. I went to um, see a home with my wife a year and a half ago. All over the home was what people call art. It was pornography. My brain was not the same for the next two days. I didn't go to see. I don't consider it a slip or a relapse. Wow. But it was there. My wife noticed it right away as I walked out of the house. I wasn't the same. Something shifted. So we need to put a little bit of technology in front of us just to give us that space. The second is support groups. Those things are so important. Have a community of friends who are working on the same problem. We can talk to about it. If we slipped our phone numbers, my plan, if I ever have an urge, I don't have any strategy not to have an urge. My strategy is when I have an urge, I call three friends, I write about it, and then I do exactly what I intended to do. And using that means watch porn. And using that formula, I've never once had the urge to watch porn. After those conversations, when I say I call three people, I don't talk to three people. I call three people until I at least get one person on the phone. After three, I don't, I'll leave a message with each one. 
I, if I don't, if I speak to one, then I'm done. I have a conversation. I just talk about what's going on. If after that conversation, I still intend to watch porn, I have no reason to fight it. I've used this formula. I've never wanted to watch porn once after this conversation. After after a conversation, I write. I write as well. I won't just talk to someone. You journal and, your emotions. You journal your emotions. What's going on? What happened? Yeah, just write it out. When I've done those things, there's nothing to fight. I can't withstand this. If you have an itch, how long can you withstand an itch? 20 minutes, 30 minutes, even that's a long time. Don't fight the beast. You don't you don't get into uh, you don't get into a wrestling match with uh the top wrestlers in the world. Your addict is it's the best at convincing you of everything. So the only thing you can do is play to its name. Say, you know what? I'm there, I'm listening to you. Just I have to take care of these two things. That's the deal. We made a deal. I'm gonna call someone. If they don't answer, I'm gonna call someone else. If they don't answer, I'm gonna call someone else, I'm gonna write it out. And then I'll take care of you, exactly what you say to do. But then they stop <laughs> they stop saying it the same way. The way I say it for me, my own experience, this isn't everyone, is if it doesn't come out of my mouth, it comes out of a different part of my body. So it's got to be expressed. Beautiful. The energy has got to come out. So the support groups are so, so important. And the third is the the deep healing work that's needed. The trauma exists, the, the, the crushed self-esteem, whatever, the shame, the, the deep, deep, deep shame, the reservoirs of shame I found in myself, they seem never ending and they can be about everything. And uh, it can be about body image. It can be about intelligence. It can, who knows, be about mistakes I made, guilt I had from decisions. Anything under the sun can demoralize me and going and healing and seeing how the trauma affected me and seeing where it lives in my body and literally uprooting it needs to be done. And those are the three parts I found in order to live a a porn-free life. I have a podcast, like I mentioned, where I go into much more detail with a professional, a therapist, the, the founder of Porn Anonymous, someone who works with one of these programs. And we spend four hours on this topic if you're interested in, but that's the most important thing is a whatever it takes attitude. I'm do whatever it takes in order to get healthy. And those three, those three prongs were the most important. Is your support community, the 12 step recovery meetings or no, you have your own. Uh... No, 12 step meetings. How often do you go? Now less since COVID less, but prior to COVID was three, four times a week. Wow. It was a regular part of my life. Yeah. I, I literally moved to uh, two blocks away from the meetings I was going to. It just be, it became my life. And you spoke. You would speak there? You go to a meeting, you're sharing at the meeting. Yeah, as a rule, you share at the meeting. You go, you share, yeah. especially at the beginning if you're uncomfortable. If you're not yeah. sharing because you want to leave it, you're not feeling that trigger that day, then okay, leave it to someone else to share. If you're not sharing because you're shy, then you got to share. If you're not sharing because you're ashamed, then you got to share. And your sponsor plays a big role in recovery? You have a sponsor? Huge. Yeah. I still have a sponsor. Now, most of our conversations are about, I have a number of sponsees and most of my conversations are about that. But of course, yeah, it's very important. Yeah. And you work the steps with your sponsor. I've gone through it three or four times. So in summation, the three things you said, you simply have to stay away from those things that will just trigger you and overwhelm your mind. You need to have that boundary, that space. The second thing is you have to have a support group, a support community, people you're open with. And number three, you have to be able to do the inner work. And the healing. Of of healing, healing the wounds, healing the trauma, healing the childhood scars. Yes, some of these other methodologies of healing that I've... um, engage in the last couple of years. So, the, you know, the, the trauma work, more of the body work, the body, mind, and spirit work, I found a major shift from obsession. But where I've really seen, I knew something really shifted in me, actually, the last time I watched it, I watched porn. 
So I had, by the time I did the talk, I was about three years sober. The, you know, so, so, okay, I'm feeling pretty good. I, I've earned the right to sit on the stage. I used to not be able to go 24 hours without this. I'm like, okay, I can talk. And a number of times the thought went through my head, you know, what if I relapse? Like, would I have to take down my talk? And about six months ago, eight months ago, someone gifted me with a VR headset. And I couldn't get the thought out of my head. You know, what, what does porn look like on the VR headset? And I wrestled and wrestled and fought and tried and this and that. It was like, just it tormented me for, I don't know, a week, 10 days. And eventually one night, my wife was in home. I said, okay, I'm going to. And I went to, I, I went, boom, I just went in, you know. And when I came to, after a few hours, more than a few hours, you know, that's what I was like. Once I went in, I was just like I was five years before, the same with the intensity, with all of it. It was my mind just, like I said, from the first clip, I went insane. And when I came to, I was like, wow, this is embarrassing. Like, I'm the guy people look to for, <laughs> you know, for not like people call me about this. Like, okay, I got to hang up the, the hat. I failed. And then the next thought was, that's the addict. That's the, it's good. That's the addict. It's going to kill me if I let it go. Just the opposite. Just the opposite. That's that's what's real. It's the struggle. And yeah, there was obviously it, it took me a couple months to share the story. This is probably the first time I'm sharing it very publicly. But that's the truth. That's my story. My story is not one of perfection. It's not supposed to be. And the addict wants me to believe like that's that's what we're talking about here, right? It's that shame. If I would have let that shame seep in and it wanted to, it was and it had a lot of different arguments to use, right? All the talks I've given, all the the, all the podcasts, all the people who call me for help about this. You're, all the the liar, you're a liar. You're a liar. <laughs> you're, you're the most deceptive con artist on the planet. Right. <laughs> That's what, and a few days later, I said, you know something? Now I know something shifted. The fact that it didn't even get me for a day. It didn't get me for a day. It was one evening. I, I went to town. The next day was done. The VR headset is still in my house. I haven't gone back there. It's done. So it's not only that you watched yourself getting on the train, you watched yourself killing yourself for getting on the train. You watched yourself trying to delegitimize yourself, trying to turn you in an eternal into an in- eternal imposter. You watched that happen and you said, Correct. no, I'm not going there. I'm not going to be that addict. My neural pathways will choose a different highway in my brain. I failed. I'm working on myself. Yes, I'm in a battle. Sometimes I fail. And, and one of the things, you know, you see it in, uh, in religion often, you see like the, the secondary becomes the primary, the primary becomes the secondary. Yeah. So in 12 steps where this happens is with the chips. There's nowhere in the yeah. books that it says anywhere about chips. The chip system is the lens of recovery that people have. There's nowhere in the literature. It's not like, um, what do you call it? It's not in the Tereship Exav, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Anything about I, I, I want everybody to hear this. I, I want everybody to hear this. Ellie Nash is considered a guru on recovery today because he's the one who came out. Now, he himself fell prey to porn addiction when he got the stupid VR. So I just want everybody to realize that he's asking himself, will it be like the chief rabbi being caught and doing some major sin? You have to quit. You have to resign. Like, you're, you're such a liar and a hypocrite. And yet he identified that as the addict. 
That's the addict in him that's going to delegitimize him completely and turn him into a shameful, disgusting, repulsive, abominable human being. It's exactly what addiction wants to do to you. But it uses God, it uses truth, it uses honesty to lure you into the trap, right? It doesn't use the words of recovery. It said what it said was, hey, you were able to pick up a chip four years. Yeah. And in another few months, you would have picked up a five-year chip. You've, you've thrown it all away. You can't pick up the chip. Yeah. I said, you know what? Now my new chip is once in five years. Eat that. Yes. <laughs> no, man, very powerful. It's amazing. So, wow. That's, uh, there's a beautiful... There's a beautiful Hasidic interpretation we say in Mayriv, in the evening services every night. Remove Satan from before us and from behind us. So I understand why Satan is in front of me. You know, he's trying to be my tour guide. Mm. But why is he behind me? So there's a beautiful interpretation. Satan in front of me tries to guide me towards sin, towards addiction. Satan behind me, after I do it, he stands behind me. And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, you're such a bad person. You're such a horrible person. It's after the act. And that Satan is worse than anybody. Because right. for sin, for a sin, you could do tshuva. For the guilt about the sin, there's no tshuva. Because you think the guilt is holy. I'm so right. holy. I'm sensitive. I'm, I'm, re- I'm in recovery. I'm not a liar. I'm honest. How can I do this ever again? But that sometimes, it's, it's, the wor- it's the worst because that Satan keeps you down literally in the abyss forever. Yeah, and that's, that, that's my final word on shame, so to speak, is what will it do to you? Ultimately, if I would have believed that voice, I would have continued from that day and gone right back and to it was over. You would have where been, I was five, six years ago you watching porn on a daily basis. would have been a full-fledged porn addict. I'm just I wondering... I'm just wondering, how does your wife deal with all this exposure that you always talk about this? And how Give me a your- second that my uh, Such an important story Ellie is sharing. Such an important story, everybody. You know, the shame. The shame becomes so destructive. I wanted to ask him about how his wife deals with it. So there's a woman who says here, my husband, I, I am a full-blown addict. And I really don't know what to do. What am I supposed to do about this? And I would say to you, you know, it's similar to what we would tell the men. There's a deep void in you and, and you need to work on your relationship with yourself. You probably have so much brokenness in you and have compassion. And the only thing I can hope is that you can build a relationship with your husband that is deep and meaningful. Because if you can have such a real relationship, you won't have to go to porn and, and, and prostitution to fill it. So, but maybe you can't. Maybe your marriage is in a state where you can't go there at the moment. But at least you have to become aware of the things that are broken in you and what you really need to fill your void. Listen, women are sensitive. Men are also sensitive. But that sensitivity is what I think is driving all of this. And Ellie, I was asking you, how does your wife deal with the fact that you talk about all of this so openly? I mean, I don't know if I'm trespassing my boundaries. Yeah. But No, it's a, it's a fair question. Um Fair question. So on the one hand, she's been amazingly supportive. She's the one who kind of gave me permission, quote unquote, not to to speak in this way. For example, uh, on several occasions, she she came back home. She was dinner with at dinner with friends, and she'd come back home and she'd say, "I hope you don't mind, but I shared your story tonight. One of my friends, our husband cheated on them, or something else happened." 
they're struggling in some way or they're drinking a lot. So I shared your story. You know, I was hoping it would help. I was hoping it would be helpful to them. This is before I was talking about, I'd spoken about the abuse, but I hadn't, hadn't spoken about the addiction and the details of the addiction. And I said, no, by all means, it's your story too. Like it's not only, not only my story. You married right. to me, dating me for years before this happened. Like, you know, so she would share her story as well, how she came to terms, how she got to the point of not personalizing my behaviors and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, so on several occasions, I saw that she had almost pride. She would say this with pride. No, my husband's a sex addict. <laughs> like, are you kidding? Wow. So there was a, a pride. Yeah, he's in recovery and he goes to meetings and he meditates and he does all these things. Wow. That's not to say there weren't a couple of occasions where she was like, do you really need to do this? Like speak to people. And because a big part of 12 steps, say so you keep what you have by giving it away. And that's, you know, so many people you can talk to. And obviously I run a business and I have three young children. So it's not as, it's not as much as I would like, but I spend a fair amount of my time speaking to people who are struggling. So on a couple of occasions, like, is, is this necessary? Is this going to be your life? And I said, it's kind of one or the other, you know, it's kind of one or the other. So, but 99% of the time, she's extremely supportive. There are certain things that I've said that she asked me to, you know, say in a think, different way next time or something like many that. In many ways, more- in many ways, it, this is so, it's probably so redemptive for you. It's almost like all the pain and loneliness you went through, you have transformed into a catalyst for helping so many people. Well, one, like I mentioned, that comes out of my mouth or comes out of someone else. So there's definitely something for me that this, right, it it releases energy in a way that is very positive for me. But on the other hand, it's something I'm just understanding tonight in the podcast, as I was talking and hearing myself say it, is that it heals that loneliness, that loneliness that was the, the fuel, the fire of the addiction yeah, when I start getting messages after after things like this from people who are, you know, st- I mean, something you see the struggle. I, f- I forget sometimes just how bad it was, how demoralizing. Yeah. It when is you to- look back, do you wish that you would have never gone through all of this, the molestation and the exposure to porn as a youngster? No, I choose all of it. No, really? A- yeah, for sure. So that's very powerful. <laughs> In other words, today you look back and you're grateful. Today, I look back, I own every part of my story. I say, if I was the author of my story, if I was given, you know, the, if I was given the role that God had, I'd put it all in. And any part of my story that I haven't fully put in there, some business problems that I'm dealing with right now, I don't feel belong in my story. But okay, it's there. Got, so that's <laughs> no, amazing. I gotta, the because the this, fact that I don't think it belongs in my story means that it's not, uh, it's not amazing. healed yet. Because, right. Because one of the great sages, Rabbeinu Bechayi, writes... And it's what you're saying now. And I always found it as an incredible insight. He says that before soul comes down, it looks at every all of its experiences and it has to accept it and embrace it and enthusiastically choose it. And only then does the soul come down to the world. Which means in a very mystical way that we choose everything that happens because deep down we know that this is essential to our journey and it's going to turn us into the people that we're becoming. Now that we're supposed to become now, it could be. Wait, a so, very, one second. So, you said Rabbeinu B'chayyeh says this. Rabbeinu B'chayyeh, Parshas Kisaitz. Yeah, I found it oh, as an. I found. I find it to be Can a you, very healing insight. I'm gonna. I'm gonna send you a message afterwards. I'll I'll share privately with you why what you're saying is very very important to me. Um, I was looking for the source. 
Yeah, so yeah, it's, it's very powerful. To, I'll tell you. To you. It's very Sometimes powerful. people don't understand it, and they think that it's 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 insensitive to say. It's almost like, really, I chose what happened to me. Do you know what happened to me? Do you know the curses? So we have to be very sensitive. I'm saying this to you because very often when a person works through their story and they become the person that they become as a result of it, they can really appreciate this. That it's almost deep down, none of us are victims. Deep down. We are actually the masters of our life. We are the ones who define our destiny, even in those darkest and bleakest moments. Our soul is more powerful than everything. And it like sees it and it's like, that's the place where I'm going to bring light into. That dark abyss, that's exactly where I'm going. It's like the, the, the soldier who's sent to Normandy or wherever other wars on. He doesn't wake up in the morning and he says, I'm such a loser, I'm such a horrible person, look where they sent me. No, they sent me here because it's a war zone, because I have the uniform, the training, the gear, the resources to defeat Hitler's Germany and, and France or Belgium or wherever the front is. And when a person wakes up and I'm waking up with depression or with addiction or with mental anxiety or with mental illness... It's like, am I a victim of horrific situations and circumstances? Or I was sent into these dark places because I can bring in light there. It, it changes everything. And what if my soul knew everything? And it says, this is the journey. So it's a very, very powerful teaching. And I'm hearing this I don't you. think it's insensitive. I think it's the only way to look at it. Because You're, you're right. But when somebody's in the midst of the pain... We just have to acknowledge the grief. It's not insensitive, but we have to, we could never use this as a, as an excuse to delegitimize grief, grief grieving work. Right. I mean, it's something, that's the it's, point. It's something that, it's a message that someone can only say to themselves. Right. Right. Can't say it to exactly. Can't exactly. Say it to and, and it, and it should never be used as a, as an excuse not to feel pain. Oh, everything is good. My soul chose. Oh, the molestation. Yeah. Wonderful experience. Uh, oh, you became an orphan. Oh, that's amazing. Really? You were beaten. Oh, that's incredible. Your soul. Ch-. There's an element of deep pain of, of a lot of grief work and a lot, a lot of internal, internal feeling, you know, sobbing and grieving for, for the losses and for what I didn't have. And from there itself, I can only, for, only from there can I come to a place of, of deeper growth. Yeah, the, way, the way I view it is, let's say abuse, for example, abuse is, is an infection. It leaves someone literally infected with horrible beliefs, oftentimes horrible uh, responses yeah. in their body to stimulus. Yeah, And yeah, those yeah, infections yeah. have to be removed. So there's nothing to yeah. Can't say I chose this I, until the infections, the parts of the infection yeah. that could be removed exactly. are removed. But my experience is it's it's the only way because when someone has gone through a a certain threshold or passed a certain threshold of pain, then there's only two choices. One is that it's random and one that it was chosen. So exactly. if you say it was random, then like I'm gonna feel like a victim that I was dealt such Beautiful. a card like this. I was randomly so you the only option, the is only to, way to live a really empowered life, correct, is to say, let's imagine, uh, just to try something on. So I talk talk to people about it all the time. Not, don't 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 wear the suit for the next fifty years. Just let's try it on for a few minutes. One is it randomly happened. You you know I have a close friend who was abused. I've never heard a story like this. Abused abused by his uh, brother, his other brother, his friend's brother. He, so many, so many people abuse this guy to the point that he doesn't even know 
when his relationship when when it went from real relationships to abuse. It started at four and it continued till he's thirty-five. It was just like when he was thirteen, he was in a relationship with a thirty-year-old that continued till he was twenty-two. I mean, stuff you've never heard, like crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. And um, so obviously, someone like that, you tell him it was random. How can you? Random. I randomly got dealt like one of the worst cards, the worst cards in the deck, and poverty, and whatever, and and a very very from environment, and now not sure if he's straight or or gay, and you know the harshest messaging he received about all of these things. You know he he had Rebbeim who taught him. You know he really set him up for disaster. So to believe that you're it's random, you'll never recover from that. I randomly got selected the last card in the deck. So the only option is to say, okay, someone who had more intelligence than me, who knew what they were talking about, who understood my power, understood my heart, my soul, you know, things that I cannot see, thought this was the appropriate path. So I don't feel that way. Great. I'm not, it's not a, it's not just feel that way because keep working until you feel that way. Keep excavating and excavating and healing and healing until one day you arrive, hey, you want to know something? I'm happy. I'm happy I was chosen to be sexually abused because I was able to, to be on the front lines with JCW. I was able to speak to a lot of people. I'm happy that of all the addictions I got, I got this one addiction because obviously the shy kid who didn't have a voice, who was afraid of public speaking, could make an impact on this subject. And on and on, there's many, many things. Some of my best friends and my closest relationships are people who struggle with the same struggle. I have. I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. The Gemara says the place where the Balchuva, the place where the returnee stands, the greatest Sadiq could never reach it because it's through the pain that his discoveries and his relationships and his truth is just at a completely different level. It's <laughs> he 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 took darkness and he transformed it into light. It's a whole different level of of life. The truth is, it's the entire story of Yosef, the second half of Bereshis. His brothers literally kidnapped him, threw him into a pit with scorpions, sold him into slavery. He ended up as a prisoner for 12 years. He had the worst life, the worst levels of abuse. And this was after he was orphaned from his mother. And there was nobody there for him in the world. And then on the day of reckoning, he tells his brothers, he says, I'm not upset. You guys shouldn't be depressed because you did not sell me. I was sent. I was not right, so sold. So when did he say I that? When, when did he say that? He said that after he became the prime minister of exactly. Egypt, exactly, and he realized right. that he that he saved the world. He literally saved the world from famine, and he saved his whole family. And then he looked at them and he said, "I was not a victim. I was sent. I was on a shlichus." But the truth right. is, you see that he had that attitude throughout the whole story because even in prison and even as a slave, he has this charm and grace. He never gets bitter and angry and resentful. And I think the secret of his life was, there's an expression in English, sometimes you feel that you were buried, but the one who buried you didn't realize that you're a seed. And you know what happens when you bury a seed, right? So Yosef was put into a pit. He was buried twice by his brothers and then by Petifra's wife. But he was a seed. Yosef means grow. And, and, And the seed turned into a tree. So it's really a very, very empowering attitude. Your soul right. is never buried. Your soul is planted. And it goes through a lot of difficult journeys, but ultimately the tree will, uh, will emerge in great splendor if you allow yourself to see yourself from that perspective. And right. really I want to be careful. It's, mission, not, huh? it's, not a way, it's, not, it's not a way to add more shame to someone. No. It's a way to say, 
no, the journey's not over. Obviously, if you haven't, when once yeah, someone right, gets crowned a prince, there's no doubt in their mind that that right. especially when there's a famine and they have to feed the whole, you know, all right. the Jewish and, people. And you just you you see your life from a different perspective. There, there was there was a Jewish there's a Jewish writer. He speaks about the fact that everyone has two mountains in their lives. You know, we climb the first mountain, we want to make money, we want to be successful, we want to have respect, we want to be ambitious, creative. Everyone has their own dreams, and you reach the top of the mountain, or almost the top of the mountain, and then for some reason you fall, you fall, into, uh, you fall off a cliff into the abyss. Maybe it's loss, maybe it's a midlife crisis, maybe it's addiction, maybe it's a divorce, maybe it's something with the children, a crisis. So or sometimes the, that mountain proves to be empty. It proves to be empty, right? You see, there's nothing there. Yeah. Or, or other things, you know, you get backstabbed, you get older, you become more mature. Things happen, you know, suddenly deeper traumas come out. He says, then we start climbing a second mountain. It's a very different mountain. It's a mountain that's not about what people are going to think about us. And it's not about vanity. And it's not about showbiz. And it's not about manipulation and exploitation and being connected to the right people. It's a mountain where you really embrace your destiny and what's your God-given mission and who you really are as a person. You focus on what you could give more than on what you can take. You realize your inner resilience and strength. You're a servant. You're an ambassador. And it's a whole different, you know, you see yourself very differently. It's And you meet some people and there's like a halo around them. You talk to them for five minutes and you feel there's very little vanity. There's a lot of authenticity. And those are people who are climbing the second mountain. You know, they said goodbye to the first mountain. And people who have been through failure and stumbling blocks, when they use it as a springboard for growth, there's just a light that you see around their face. You talk to them. And just a certain level of BS that's gone, you know? The convers- so many conversations are so inauthentic, you know? It's just, it's, I call them elevator conversations, you know? And But certain people you meet, and, you know, within 60 seconds, it's just, it's real. Just real, it's authenticity. There's nothing that fuels authenticity like the vulnerability of failure. I'm wondering, somebody asks, somebody asks Ellie, does fit does or did physical exercise play a role in your recovery and health? Does it play a role? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, let's, actually, let me answer the. Let me answer it more specifically. So, in um, the the way I, you once one of the mentioned, things- you mentioned years ago that for you, exercise at some point became part of a problem. You were obsessed. So, right. That's why I was that's that's why I stumbled on the question for a little bit is because there was a, a point in time where my you know, when I talk about the infection of abuse, it left me with two prominent feelings being sexually abused. One is that I'm disgusting, and the second is that I'm weak. And I'm not talking about I'm disgusting, I'm talking about a disgust to the core of your being. That's what it felt like. And then a weakness also, because I always judge myself, like the guy overpowered me, locked me in a room, he, you know, would wrestle me and so the gym and a way to, I, I was skinny for a long time and putting on the, you know, putting on muscle and all of that was a big part of the, uh, here it, it wasn't coming from a healthy place. Right. I see for sure. So from that perspective, it wasn't healthy. On the other hand, yeah, it's always been, 
an important part of like some level of fitness, not uh, not the way right. I engage in so it. So, in your time. particular case, the exercise was fueling a certain it's image. It's coming from a feeling. I was, I felt weak, so I constantly right. needed. Somebody strength. once On said, other- "Don't exercise because you hate your body. Exercise because you love your body." I love that. Right. I love. But that. generally, I think for all of us, physical exercise, when it's just done, you know, in a good way. To, to be able to be healthy and strong and animated and allow our biological systems to function. I think it's an incredible source of just normalcy and balance and, right. and creativity no, no and, and, and it helps release some toxicity and so forth. Somebody asks a very interesting question. She, she writes to me at the end, maybe she has to speak to your wife. <laughs> My <laughs> husband used to watch porn all the time. Now he stopped, but when we're together, I feel like cheap garbage. Is there anything I can do to help feel truly comfortable and connected? There's no help. There's no way of escaping the feeling that I'm just another piece of garbage that he's exploiting. Wow. Um, I guess, I'm trying to think, I guess I would ask this person if I was one-on-one with them and wanting to be a little bit, um, challenging is if they felt like garbage before they met their husband. Is he reminding you of a feeling or is he creating a feeling? If he's reminding you of a feeling, you may have your own work to do. And if he is creating the feeling, then he has Obviously. work to do. Then he has work <laughs> that, to do. No, that's, that's no question. But what she's saying is that he used to watch porn all the time. Yes, he used to. He stopped. He stopped. So... So I guess if he's really in that space where he, you know, he came around and he's honest and he's remorseful and he learned from his mistakes, unless he's reminding you of your own inadequacies. Right. That's what I'm thinking. Meaning if he was right. continuously engaging in it, Got it, he is in some other way. I, another thing also, when people go through this process of recovering, uh, a, a lot of things get stripped. Friends get stripped. Another, you know, so when when you asked about the um, the health, so one of the things I don't do because you can kind of get drunk on food, overeating. I notice when I get drunk on food and drunk on on drink as well, acting out is right around the corner. So I don't I, I don't binge eat like I once did. So it's unlikely to me that someone figured out how to kick something like a porn addiction and is still extremely disrespectful of his wife. Maybe. And if that's the case, then that's why you feel like garbage and, you know, the whole relationship has to be looked at. Why are you with someone who's making you feel like garbage? But assuming that like most people, in order to heal the addiction, he's had to change a lot about his behaviors and probably can't be as crass, as rude, as aggressive with pe- with with others, then the feeling may predate this person. Another woman asks, we have a lot of women on a lot. Another woman says, I just found out out of the blue that he's a porn addict. My husband was a bentaira. He's a rabbi. He gives classes. He's a mentor. I never expected this in my wildest dreams. He's a very religious Jew. But I just found out he's a serious porn addict. How do I even begin to cope? If, if, if anyone knew how many there are, I mean, the amount of shluchim who called me with this, this problem, the amount of rabbis, it's it's, it's everyone. I mean, who, who doesn't deal with this? They tried to do a study to see how pornography affects the teenage mind. Now, in order to do this study, you have to have teenagers who haven't viewed pornography, what they call the control group. 
They couldn't find a control group. They couldn't find enough teenagers who hadn't come across pornography in order to do a study of how pornography affects. So rabbis are like everyone else. You know, that's all. I mean, they, they, he didn't become inhuman because he chose a certain profession or because he studied and he might be very good at what he does, but that's and not a reason to... And sometimes as a rabbi, if I may add, sometimes rabbis also suffer from things that can increase their addiction. Imposter right. syndrome feeling empty, I'm supposed to inspiring, inspire the whole audience for Purim, for Hanukkah, for Rosh Hashanah, for Yom Kippur. I don't believe, I don't feel, I don't believe diddly squat, I'm spiritually empty, and the rabbi feels a frustration and a void more than everybody else. So just realize that too. Scholarship doesn't help for that. He's still human and vulnerable and sometimes feels very empty and feels like a hypocrite. And may suffering in his own relationships and marriage, and may have his own trauma and and may even have become a rabbi to become nachas for his parents or his Rosh Hashiva and never really worked through his own self-esteem. You know, he may be in showbiz. He's maybe a broken man. So what would you, know, you suggest to this to this wife? Where does she begin? Like, So, so I'll give her the same blessing I gave to uh, a, a woman who uh, reached out to me that her, her husband had cheated on. She found out her husband had cheated him and she kept referring in the conversation, I had several conversations with her to the date, the date she found out. And whatever the date was, right? It was <laughs> June 15th is, the, you know, this date. And it's coming close to June. And therefore, I'm being triggered again because I know it's June and June 15th is the date. So I asked her, how good was your marriage before your husband cheated on you? Before you found out your husband cheated on you? So it's not so good. And how much attention were you giving it? Not so much. The fact that it wasn't, but you knew it wasn't good but you weren't giving it any attention. And either was your husband. Now, how much attention are you giving it? It's the number one most important thing in my life is working on, on the addiction. So I said, I bless you that sooner than later, you should realize what I already realized. And I think anyone else looking at the situation with an honest view realizes this is the best day of your life and the best thing for your marriage that you found out he was cheating because it wasn't good. And you found out the day you find something out, that's a good day. So instead of June 15th being the worst day, Today of the we discover the infection. You. We discover the exactly. infection. And so we now can we can begin. pay attention. Now we can pay attention. We can the begin fact to that heal. you found out, I'm fairly certain this person's marriage wasn't roses and butterflies before they found out about it. Now people are paying attention. Good. So now let's, let's heal it. And, you know, the thing is, I, I, I heard this from, from Chaim Kohn. I don't know if you know Chaim Kohn. I'll quote him. He said it. He said, if there's no redemption, if there are certain stories that can have redemption, then I don't want any part of this. I don't want any part of this game. I don't want any of this part of life. Every story has to have the ability to have redemption at the end. So I know it's tough. It's very tough to find out the betrayal, the lies, the lies on multiple levels. How many times did they come what, home but what and say something What if the spouse else? is not taking accountability, not honest, not ready to say, you know what, I got to work through everything and start from scratch? What if there's denial? What if you're encountering deception? I mean, that's why they, right, that's why they have programs for uh, those people for who sometimes need to extricate. Yeah, for spouses who sometimes need to extricate yeah. you, themselves you from have the situation. To, you have to remain in a space of internal wholesomeness as much as possible to retain your sanity and not to become an enabler and not to be destroyed, not to allow yourself to be destroyed, to have healthy boundaries. Not, not to get on the crazy train with them. You know, if someone's on the crazy train, I mean, I, you know, I, I get calls from different people. I was speaking to uh, 
a woman's husband, the shliach, was struggling with opioid addiction, really, really, really bad, terrible, relapsed multiple times, lied multiple times and everything else. And in her mind, at least from the first time I spoke to her, it was, my life is never going to be okay until I know with certainty that my husband is not doing opioids. And she's going to have to get off that train because he's on the crazy train. You know, it, it is what it is. He's struggling. He's got to numb something. He's running away from, from deep pain. And if her mood is dependent on his instability, I mean, this is, it's, it's, it's unsustainable. So the only option for her is to get to a place where she separates in a healthy way from uh, emotionally from her husband that says, I'm going to have a, a life of my own choosing, not, not dependent on whether right. he did or didn't. And not even whether he did or didn't. It's whether I know for certain that he didn't. Okay, and now what are you going to do? A urine analysis every four, every four minute, 40 minutes? I mean, come on. It, it is, is, make it is so, so tragic when we see people who are in the clergy. They represent spirituality. And yet we are in such a trap. We're in the name of spirituality and the rabbinate and helping people. We just could camouflage our the traumas and addictions and dysfunctions and lies and deceptions and not even being aware of how how messed up we are. <laughs> how well, our brains the, are just, huh? One of the most messed up people I've ever spoken to. Like, it was one of the most difficult conversations I've ever had because he was, he was calling me because to save his marriage. But you understand why his wife wanted to, to leave him. My spouse wanted to leave him. They were together, whatever it was, 25 years. And he was upset that she wasn't taking care of herself well enough. So he had all the justifications for the way he was, he was behaving and everything else. And when I was talking to him and explaining to him, like, you know, hey, why she feels this way and things like that, he kept going back to blaming on her. But at some point he said, listen, I'm both a rabbi and a therapist. <laughs> How can you tell me <laughs> How can you tell me these things about me? Like, I need, you want me to acknowledge I have an issue? I said you have the biggest issue of anyone I've ever met. Like I said, I've never met someone with such a big issue. He's wow. like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Like, you know, I'm going. I said, the issue is that you think you shouldn't have any issues. Like, we're human beings. Like, come on, what are we put here for? We're put here to struggle, to overcome a struggle. So you're now you're locked in this prison, and I understand that. I'm a rabbi and a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> right. How half can the day I have the me? rabbi hat, half the day I have the therapist hat. I'm Superman, Harry Potter. Right. And thank God, like something like the 12 steps where you meet, you know, who's there's there's no one at the front of the room who who earns who earns that. Uh, say, OK, I'm the guy who's figured it out. So everyone else does. Of course, our brain tricks ourselves, just like I was sharing earlier. Oh, I'm sober for this many years and we we take on these positions, but it's not the core of it. The core of it is we're wounded healers and we're people who are stumbling in the dark, who've got a little bit of light and then say, OK, I can flash a light for you, but I need you to flash a light for me. I think if I may change the subject, I think Putin is a very powerful lesson for so many of us. What an ego that is unbridled and unchecked is capable of. Here's a man who built Russia, who helped the Jews of Russia so much, but he's going to go down in history as a monster because his ego literally has no bounds. When we have no reckoning, no introspection, no Nobody to challenge us. Nobody to say, you know, maybe you're wounded. Do you know how to back off? Do you know, it's unbelievable. You see, a person is ready to schlep a world into conflict 
destroy a country and the lives of who knows how many people. Why? For what? <laughs> Literally, a, 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 just an insane ego. A pare. Huh? <laughs> I said a pare. Just an insane ego. Haman had one Jew not bowing down to him, and he decided he needs to right. do genocide because one man didn't bow down to him. Well, yeah. But what does that mean for us? You know, for us, I don't think many of us have such big egos, but we have such deep traumas that translate translate into narcissism or, or you know, all forms of egotism or insecurities that just make us really surrender to our lowest angels. So it's just a lesson in how self-destructive some talented and smart people can be and bury, and bury everything they accomplished. And I think it's a reason why you have the, the support groups, the sponsors and stuff like that is because you need someone who can call you out on your stuff. If we don't have that, then we're... Right. The great gift is to have a spouse if you have a spouse who does <laughs> not get too impressed by you. <laughs> it's a great gift. She, she, doesn't, she doesn't attend your speeches. Right. And <laughs> if she attends, she becomes the worst critic. <laughs> so us yeah. men don't like it. You know, We love the standing ovations. But as somebody once told me, said Rabbi Jacobson, compliments will never help you grow. It's the people who will challenge you deeply, will make you uncomfortable, who will help you get out of your comfort zone. Once you know they care about you, they've married you. Right. And no, it has to come from compassion. If somebody comes to me and just says, you're a jerk and I hate you, we're not going to grow from that because we become defensive, you know, my trauma versus his trauma. So now... It's our traumas fighting with each other. But if a person has compassion, and with compassion, they say, you know, maybe you should look at what's going on. Maybe you should look at what's going on. It's very powerful. But we have to be ready for it. And I think all of us struggling with our addictions and traumas, just that humility is so important. You know, the humility. There was a story about the Baal Shem Tev. It's a very moving story. A Jew came to him, and he said he wants to see Elijah the prophet. Baal Shem Tev said, it's not for you. You don't need it. He begged and pleaded. So he said, okay, I'll give you a 10-year program. And he gave him a 10-year spiritual regimen program to be able to see Elijah. And he did it for 10 years. He never saw Elijah the prophet. So he comes back to the Baal Shem Tev and he says, 10 years down the drain. 10 years I accomplished nothing. I wasted my time. He said, what happened? He said, I didn't see Elijah the prophet. Everything was futile. Shandu looked at him and said, it was not futile at all. You have achieved humility. You know, 10 years of working and not seeing Elio Anavi taught you what it means to be human, to be humble. And that's sometimes the greatest achievement, much deeper than seeing Prophet Elijah, because it keeps you vulnerable. Vulnerable people are authentic people. Authentic people are people who grow, and people who connect to others. So that's very powerful. So I loved your blessing to that woman. <laughs> Yeah, I, that, I, it, that I, the worst day should become becomes the best day. Yeah, maybe I that's the meaning that Tish, it says that Tishabov is going to be the happiest day. Oh. Our fast <laughs> days are going to become holidays. Why? Because the days that expose the infections are the days that transform us into the people we are capable of becoming. That's a beautiful insight you mm-hmm. gave us. Mm-hmm. So we need more. I mean, for those for those listening in who struggled a lot, there are a lot of people struggling. So there are a lot of people in pain. So more and more people need to lean in and recognize that they're uh, 
experiences. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we have to be able to transcend the stigmas, to transcend the stigmas and to realize that addiction is innate to the human condition. In other words, if I'm a real human being, I'm suffering from one form of addiction or another. Addiction is really just escaping the void that comes from self-consciousness that keeps me lonely and broken and separated. Right. I think the assumption has to be when you're walking into a room that everyone is struggling in one form or another. Like that's the assumption. And yeah, that's, and speaker, I think the main purpose of this conversation is just to dispose of the shame because the shame are those things that we feel make us not worthy of being in the same room as others. When in fact, it's what gives us the most, most commonality with other people. All of these things that I, that I speak about that were so shameful to me, what the abuse, the addiction, specifically the porn addiction, those are the areas where I've connected with people the most because that's where their humanity lives the most, where their humanness. So hopefully we can, uh, we've made a dent tonight in some of the shame that exists. Remove some of that. And, uh, um, Ellie, I just want to finish. Bessel, I asked Bessel van der Kolk from his experience. How do you know you're at a good, with a good therapist? And how do you know that the model of therapy that you're engaging in is the best for you? And he, his answer really fascinated me. And this is a non-Jew, a Gentile, who's a doctor, a graduate from Harvard, one of the leading trauma experts in the world. And he said these words. He said, the level of education of the therapist doesn't matter so much. Um, the model doesn't matter so much. He says it all matters, but that's not the most important thing. He says the most important thing that matters is, and I'm going to quote him, he says, how much the therapist has worked through his own crap. Because he says, when the patient comes to me, only if I have really worked through my own issues can I become that container that really can hold him or her and help them process and open up their body and their mind and release their trauma and find healing. He says, so the key is that I, the healer, I am aware of all my triggers and everything you, the patient, is doing to me and for me and what's happening in my brain and that my response is completely guided, not from a place of judgment or expertise or professionalism or criticism or trying to achieve this or achieve that, but really, really just creating a space for the person to be able to process their pain and trauma. And I thought that was very, very profound. It's exactly right. That note is exactly the opposite of the therapist we, we, we mentioned earlier, even though there are many therapists in recovery and there are many therapists who are healing, but for exactly. someone to get strapped up on that stone. Exactly. exactly. I'm a therapist. How yeah, can yeah. you say, no, yeah. that's, you know, and he meaning said, I'm not looking for a right. therapist who's perfect. I'm yeah. looking for a therapist who's working right. their own stuff. And he said more important than the education, the fact that he knows all the textbooks and he knows all the models and he knows all the conditions and he knows all the diagnoses. Yes, of course, a guy has to know his stuff. Can't be ignorant. But he says, but that's not the key. The key is his ability to suspend his own crap. He used a different word, I won't quote it. To suspend all that, to be able to create a womb, a space for the, for the patient. He says, that's the key. It's ultimately about his love and compassion and real ability just to hold on to the person. I just thought it was, it was so profound. 
because we don't look at it that way. It's like, oh, I, I have the advice. I know so much. You come to me with your problem. I have what to tell you. You lost the plot. You have nothing to tell me. You have nothing to tell me. The only one you have to tell anything to is yourself. The Baal Shem Tev once said that all real talking is about listening. You know, it's really about listening to myself, not just listening to you. It's listening to what my brain is doing at the moment and and asking, whoa, wow, how did that happen? <laughs> like, why am I triggered? You know, just to be curious, to be inquisitive and and then to be able to be a conduit for, for God's love and light and compassion and healing powers. And I, it was, for me, it was, it was, I have to say, it was a very powerful idea. I've read it in, in, in Hasidic literature. This statement is said hundreds of times that it's about connection, about empathy more than anything else. But it never really resonated it. Like I never understood it scientifically. I thought it's very nice. It's emotional. But he said it's really, it's, 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 it's the cutting edge of scientific healing. This, it's where everything happens in that space. For me, I remember it was interesting when I, I went to a therapist, opened up with them about my addiction. And he said, I want you to call this guy, this guy. And he gives me the number of a guy whose only credentials was that he hadn't watched porn in a few years, you know, <laughs> now therapy, but it was like the therapist who referred to me. He was like, Ellie, I can't help you with this one. Like, this is the guy, this is the guy who could, wow. you know, for something like this, you need the, uh, you need someone who's, who's walked that path. And wow. that's been a beautiful thing is to watch walk into a room full of people several times a week for seven, eight years. Exactly. People who've struggled and the healing that exists, it's not it's right. It's just being, I, I like the way he described it because it's nothing they're doing. It's being in the presence of people who have accepted their own vulnerability. Yeah. Their own humanity, their own imperfections, their own vulnerabilities. And they, we, we, could, we can cry together. You remember the it's camp healing. song? Don't walk in front of me. I may not follow. Don't yeah. walk behind me. I may not lead. Just walk beside me. Hold my hand, and together we will. So, okay, so we've settled it. It's not the Ashkenazic way. <laughs> <laughs> the cerebral way is gone. We need to bring the uh, more Swartim into Crown Heights. <laughs> well, the cere- cerebral, it, 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 we need a seamless flow, a seamless flow between That's all true. parts of the brain. Like seamless, not to get stuck anywhere. I agree. All right, Jacobson, it's been an honor and a pleasure to... Uh, Thank you, Ellie. It was, it was my honor and my pleasure and thrilling privilege. As I said before, you're a source of inspiration and clarity and leadership to myself and so many of us. From strength to so, strength. Thank you so much. Continue climbing a, Mount Everest. Continue climbing Mount Everest. Thank you so much. I hope I'm on the second mountain because I don't want to go through another dip. Yeah, yeah. You're on the second mountain. <laughs> You know that Moshe himself climbed two mountains. One was Mount Sinai. It was the glorious mountain where everything happened. But at the end of his life, God told him you have to climb another mountain. It's called Har Nevoi, the last mountain, Nevoi. The Magad of Mizrich says Nevoi is Nun Boy. There's 49 portals of wisdom that he attained during his lifetime. But the 50th Nun, Nun Boy, was only the last day of his life. The 50th portal is that which transcends our limited perceptions of what reality is supposed to look like. That's the second mountain. Second mountain is the mountain where you don't ask, uh, you don't uh, ask what everybody can do for you, what God can do for you, but you ask, you know, what's my mission? What can I do? What's my shlichus? It's a different question. 
yeah. question expands. Not anymore about like you know defense mechanisms, protecting myself and positioning myself in the chess game so that you know defense, offense. It's really about letting go and being a conduit for infinity. Amen to that. And I guess vulnerability is the great uh, catalyst for that, paradoxically. Okay, wow. And thank you, everybody, for joining us. And thank you for the questions. You see, Ellie, how many questions there are here and the questions and answers? Yeah, huh? the interaction. There's been Pretty a lot. Intense, yeah. possibly huh? each one. Yeah, a lot of questions I see in the questions and answers and in the chat. There's I been see a, on the yeshiva.net a lot, yeah? There's been a couple of conversations I've um, held that had as much, I don't know that any had quite as many, as much interaction as uh, as this one. But when it has, I've thought of ways and figure out ways, because obviously there's a thirst, there's a hunger, it needs to be followed up with something else. So yeah. Well, this we'll is a touch. very, very relevant topic, as you and I know so well. And it's just so important for all of us to be able to become ambassadors of truth. There's so many people suffering and so many people struggling and people feel so alone. Everyone feels that I'm the most filthy human being on the planet. And we have to hold hands. We have to look each other into the eyes and say, I'm broken. If only we all spoke and shared our thoughts. Then, uh, yeah. <laughs> right? No one would feel that way. So thank you, Rabbi Jacobson, for being an ambassador for these uh, topics. Thank you. Like you were 20-something years ago. Coming to Yeshiva, talking about Montreal, you wanted Montreal. To, to Montreal. And then yes. on the sexual abuse, being one of the first rabbis to speak out publicly about that. And now Thank you. That means a lot. Thank pornography. you. Take care, everyone. Good night. Good night. Thank you. Bye-bye.